Let me run this by my lawyer is a really helpful phrase to have in your back pocket. Legal Shield has been giving legal peace of mind for over 50 years. They connect you to a vetted law firm in your state for an affordable monthly fee. Want an experienced set of eyes on a contract fine print? Or you finally want to get that will done? Legal Shield has a dedicated group of lawyers who have your back, no matter what the future brings. Sign up today at LegalShield.com forward slash iHeart. PPLSI does not provide legal representation or advice. See a plan for complete terms. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Have you been thinking about LASIK but not sure if you're a candidate? Just go to LASIK.com slash quiz and take our free candidacy quiz. In just a few minutes, you'll know if LASIK is likely right for you. And if it is, we'll connect you with experienced LASIK doctors in your area. Start your journey towards 2020 vision. Take our free candidacy quiz at LASIK.com slash quiz. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Hi, everyone. Sophia Bush here. Welcome to Work in Progress where I talk to people who inspire me about how they got to where they are and where they think they're still going. I absolutely love today's guest, like obsession level, love her. And she is Whitney Cummings. We sat down together for over two hours, and I'm telling you, it went by like that. We probably could have continued the conversation all day. She is hilarious. And we were joined by her robot, Bearclaw, who looks just like her. Yes, she has a robot. And she brings this robot on stage with her during her Netflix special. If you haven't seen it, you must trust me. We talk about how Whitney even got into stand-up, codependency, and of course, sex robots. Here's Whitney Cummings. Where are you from originally? D.C. D.C. Okay, so were you, I always love to ask people this question. No, it's not a bad one. I'm just always fascinated because I feel like so many of the people I get to sit across from have these super interesting stories or fascinating personalities or like quirks that they're very comfortable talking about. And so I'm like, as a little girl, were you this like big and loud, funny person who was affected by noise? <laughs> like who hated the sound of like so, plastic crackling, so funny. You know? I wasn't I was a really quiet kid I was a really alone kid my, my family kind of has a joke because I was just alone a lot as a kid I just never learned like a proper decibel level and not to like be sad or anything but I just grew up in a home where you had to work really hard for attention you mm. know so I just learned really early to like tap dance and be entertaining and make people laugh and try to you know Jazz hands. Totally. Attention by any means possible. And you had to really work very hard to be heard. Mm. And then you go out in the world as an adult and you're like, hi. And everyone's like, Jesus, why are you yelling at me? And I was like, oh, that's just the 
tone I needed to You're use. You're like, this is my love language. Hi, I like, she said, it's like, the, remember that Austin Powers thing? I'm having trouble calibrating this out of my voice. Yeah, like, yeah, it's, yeah. It was always like that. Was your family really big? No, no. Small family. It's not like a great story, you know, but they were divorced and a lot of um, mental illness and alcoholism where you kind of have to fight really hard to like get people to wake up and feed you type thing, Got you know? It. So I sort of always was like trying to keep things light and make people laugh and right. take care of everybody, you know? I think humor can kind of come from two places where like jokes are about people and it's sort of cruel or jokes are for people and yeah. humor is what becomes really inclusive in a space. So it sounds like humor was sort of medicine in your dynamic. In a big way, you know, and, and humor was the only way my family could communicate with each other. You know, it was a lot of really sensitive people, a lot of insecure people. And cutting and insulting is kind of how we showed love to each other, you know, it was, mm. and that's also how we had uncomfortable conversations. You know, it's also how you can talk about really serious things without it being too devastating. You know, I just remember like passive aggressive of, form of communication I don't endorse I grew up a lot with I just remember at like the dinner table everybody laughing at like well if you hadn't had three wives maybe we wouldn't be in this situation and everyone would laugh and be like that I'm confused I was like conf it it because it feels like an insult I can't it but feels like a jab but everyone's laughing so I think I had a really um sort of I developed this dyslexia around the way to talk about a certain topic and I think the heavier mm -hmm. the topic the lighter we made it it hasn't served me great as an adult because the darker something is, usually the funnier I think it is, which is just my way of processing it. You know, I learned at an early age, just like make jokes, make jokes. So you don't have to like process the severity of something. Well, which I imagine for your career has been excellent, but like in a one-on-one -on -one heavy conversation might not be so Just helpful. what else is there, you know? I mean, I think that it's, it doesn't mean I don't take something seriously or I don't respect something or, you know, yeah. but I think just knowing you know, the context is everything, you know, because I mm -hmm. used to go into situations with people who weren't comedians and be like, oh, what's up with those fucking shirt? What about that shirt? And I was like, okay, wait a second. This is not the right context for that. But I also spend so much time with comedians that it's, you know, we all kind of do that. So you yeah. just have to kind of know when to turn it off. I get that. I think for me, I was an only child. I mean, I am an only child. So I spent a lot of time alone also, but not in the way where then like I had to challenge for attention you know there were three of us in my family and I have these incredible cousins who like I always sort of joke I had the best of both worlds because it was like I had a big family there were four of us but when they got really fucking annoying I could go home yeah but there were chunks of life where I was on my own and then I went to journalism school and like I tend to gravitate toward like let's analyze and unpack and yeah. talk about the meaning of life and yeah and I have almost the reverse experience with you. Like, I love humor so much, but I didn't get to practice it so much. Interesting. So I'm always afraid that, like, either a joke is going to fall flat or, like, I'm going to come in like a bear paw and people yeah, are yeah. going to be like, that was really too far. I It's story of my life. And <laughs> I have this theory that a joke that doesn't get a laugh is either an insult or a lie, you know? So then you just have to... And once you say... Well, that was a joke. It's already it's the ship done. has sailed. It's yeah. over, <laughs> you know. Yeah. So I, my biggest struggle, I think, in the last couple of years is really being like, look, you're not a clown. You don't have to make people laugh all the time. You yeah. are enough. Usually if I'm 
being funny. It's or trying too hard to be funny. I'm either trying to manipulate or make somebody like me, mm-hmm. or I'm implying that I don't think I'm enough, or I'm not interesting mm-hmm. enough, or good enough trying to, to be, prove your self worth. I'm not. I don't deserve to be in your space unless mm-hmm. I'm entertaining you. Wow. You know, which is not great. And frankly, when someone's trying to be funny all the time, it's it's kind of exhausting, you know? And so I think I had to really look at myself over the past couple of years and just be like, look, when you're working, work. And when you're not, don't. Yeah. And it's okay for silence. Silence used to be the most terrifying thing in the world to me because I felt like I would fill in those quiet moments with what I thought was the inner monologue of the other person, you know, and I would think you're an idiot, you're stupid, you're not funny, you're not interesting. Like to me, silence always felt like a rejection. Mm. Whereas I think silence is actually a great form of intimacy and trust. And that's what a real friendship is, is you can kind of just be boring. And it took me a long time to kind of figure that out. And I lost my dad a couple of years ago. And that's, you know, when something like that happens, you, a lot of the things you've been working on for years kind of just crystallizes overnight. I was able to grieve around a couple friends and just be boring. And I, I wasn't capable of being funny. And they didn't go anywhere. And I was like, wow. oh, I had to, I always, my brain needs proof for every, a tremendous amount of proof in order to change. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. memes, screen grabs, inspirational quotes are not enough for me. I need empirical proof for my brain yeah. to change. And so once I went through that and I saw that I was super boring for a year and my friends mm-hmm. didn't leave, I was like, oh. This is so much easier. Why haven't I been doing this the whole time? Yeah. I can just like ask questions and like I don't have to be constantly doing bits at dinner. This is so much easier. Oh my God. I feel that so hard. Like people, I think, sort of to tease me because they're amused, will say, like, why are you so into data science? Like that's so nerdy. And I'm like, who says Proof. that? So many people just just who are like, I'll, I'll, I'll bring up some random obscure reference about the percentages in this, you know, analysis. And people are like, what's wrong with you? And it comes from so much love. What's wrong with but facts? They're, I'm just like, they're the best. I'm like, but the proof makes me feel so secure, Safe, like understanding. Yeah. What else is there? Yeah, because ambiguity, I think, is scary and and pointless mm-hmm. it's you know what i mean i mean the truth is you know yeah that's why i get got super into neurology a couple of years ago because i was just like i don't like this like maybe this is it or maybe this is it i'm like i just want to know the answer so i started yeah. going to a therapist that was just that's not how neurology works that's not true because i'd be like well maybe i'm just like afraid of rejection no you're not getting dopamine because of this and you're getting too much adrenaline because of this and your body's producing too much cortisol and your frontal lobe is underdeveloped and your amygdala is activated. So that's what's happening. And I'm like, whew, okay, I can take out the litany of other explanations mm-hmm. I invented mm-hmm. and just go with that. And the litany of other explanations we invent tend to come from our fears about ourselves, about They're our delusions. lack of worth. It's dysmorphia. It's yeah. total old stories that were written 30 years ago. And they come in from our childhood. They yeah. come in from when something happens in the home, you go through some kind of trauma and your little kid brain tries to connect dots but doesn't realize there's 18 dots missing in between totally it's and like, like fucked up paint by numbers it's like a story that was written 30 years ago that's now obsolete so it's like how we sometimes clown on our founding fathers where we're like the people that wrote that are not the represented you know what i mean we're like yeah. that's an outdated back then that made a lot of sense now the same thing with the story we wrote when we were 10 that we're still adhering to about ourselves you know it's like we you know we needed different things we can sort of update our narrative according to our current reality you know yeah when i was nine i thought 
my best friend from my entire childhood and, and into adult life and I were going to get married. We made a pact and we decided we were obviously very early feminists, Mikey and I, and we decided that since it would be wrong to take either his last name or my last name, we'd pick a new one and it would be Smiley. Sure. And like that made sense to two nine-year-old best friends. Still <laughs> don't hate it. I, st- I, mean, I, I frankly, don't I don't hate it. It's pretty, <laughs> it would be some good content. It would be kind of content. Right. Hot G-rated content. I mean, not no. Not no. But, but it's like, yeah, it, at nine, you think you're making a life plan. Yeah. But what you don't realize is that your nine-year-old brain is making an imprint that actually affects your life There's plan. There's so many stories we tell ourselves every day. And like, again, we're science people, you know, so I think we can also say this. But there's lots of things we tell ourselves that just aren't true. You know, mm. it's like, I know a lot of people who are like, I'm allergic to dogs. I'm allergic to dogs. And I'm like, okay, I'm sure you are. And that's very real. But I don't know when that happened. We grow out of allergies. We grow into allergies. Like sort of the, we have to be careful with the stories we tell about ourselves because they do start to imprint into something real. And I try yeah. to every couple of months go like, what are the things I think are true about myself? You know, I'm afraid of heights. I hate skiing. Like I have all these sort of mantras about myself that I yeah. try to just revise and make sure I'm keeping up to date and fresh. I've been trying to get over my whole I'm morbidly afraid of needles mm-hmm. thing. Because apparently I've had that since I was a kid. What's so, what do you, what is scary about them besides the fact that they're giant things that can break through the trash bags that are our skin? Right. That feels into scary. our blood. Even thinking about them, my hands start to get clammy. Yeah. And my mom was like, oh, yeah, even as a baby, you had these crazy reactions to them. And I now have done this whole thing where I'm like, this is good for me. You know, I'm going to go get my, a blood draw so that I yeah. can get a an allergy test or whatever stupid fucking health thing yeah. I'm trying to figure out because yeah. I like the science. Yeah. And, I had to do this the other day. I had to get a blood test for my like annual panel. And I was like, this is great. I'm going to choose it. This is like medicine. I'm a-. And the minute that IV went in, like I turned green. My whole body started sweating. The nurse went, okay. Ah. And I was like, it's happening. I can't. I want to control this so badly. And I don't know where it comes from. Have you ever done any family constellation work? Uh, I can't believe I'm saying what? this. I okay. Uh, it's it's. Oh, I'm not family constellation. I'm not saying it's science. I'm not saying it's science. But I'm so in. But there, I am very into epigenetic imprinting. So it's like things that have happened to our ancestors explain a lot of the fears that we have now. So it is 100% proven that there were there were these incredible studies, and I'll put in the bio or whatever you put all your stuff. I'll send you the link to how mice. When they there was the study where they were smelling cherry blossoms, and every time they smelled a cherry blossom, they got electrocuted. Their offspring, when they smelled a cherry blossom, ran. Right? When we show babies pictures of spiders, they're scared, even though that they've never seen a spider and don't know what a spider is. Same with snakes, right? So it imprints in our DNA these fears. And this is super crazy. And the only reason I believe it is because it happened to me. If someone told me this story, I would think it was total dog shit, but I can't deny it. So I'm really into like horse rescue. It's like my thing. I just think in general, horses are what built civilization for us. They've done a lot for us. They got us to hospitals back in the day. They saved our lives. Incredibly intelligent. I just have a very deep connection to horses. Grew up with them, whatever. Equine therapy for trauma, all that kind of stuff, blah, blah, blah. Google me. (laughs) And I have a like very deep obsession with carriage rides. And I've spent a lot of time trying to shut the ones down in the Carolinas and in New York City. And when I see them, I have a histrionic reaction. It's like crazy. Like I can't even go to the upper east or west side of New York City. My fiance, if he hears it, because I hear them, 
And I instantly just break down and he has to like carry me into a cab and we have to leave. Like it's so bad and so irrational and not childish, but it's just an incredibly overwhelming. It's visceral. It's visceral. I'm crying. I'm, I'm out for a couple days. Like I have to cancel press when I'm in New York. Like that's how bad it is. And I did this family constellation work and I can't explain it very well. So I'm going to ex- explain it in rudimentary terms. Basically, you go through all of your ancestors, your grandfathers, your great, great grandfathers, what they did, what happened. And she kind of figures out like what you're carrying, you know, like pain from, okay, your great, great grandfather, you're carrying some of their unfinished business, basically, or mm. something negative that happened to them are now expressing through your genes, be it an allergy, be it a fear, be it an obsession, be it an addiction, whatever it is, right? We've inherited whatever genes are expressing themselves. So she said, something's going on with your great, great, great grandfather. He did something unforgivable and it's expressing itself all over. It's all, it's all over you. And I don't know anything about my ancestry. I don't anything about, I'm not that person. I used to like started to do a 23andMe and then I got super paranoid about who they're sharing the data with. Like I'm that person. Like I'm like, I called my uncle and we never talk about this kind of shit. And I was like, hey, what can you tell me about our great, great grandfather, right? And he's like, oh, he had cirrhosis, which is, my family in a nutshell, um, had cirrhosis, this, this, let me find something out. And I was like, hey, can you let me know like what he did, like anything? And first she said, she was like, whatever your great, great grandmother did with your grandfather, she withheld love. That's how she punished him, which is what I do. That's like my thing 101. If I feel hurt, I just withhold and check out. And so he explained to me what happened in their relationship. And I was like, okay, that tracks. And then he was like, well, he was always busy with the horse carriages. And I was like, what are you talking about? And he's like, oh, he like patented the axle in West Virginia that all the horse carriages I have, were like, built on. Full body chills. <laughs> and I was like, I, I, I was like, well, I bet everyone did that back then. Like, that's probably just what everyone's job was. You know, it was like today, like working at Amazon or something. And he was like, oh, no, no, he actually patented the axle that every horse carriage was based on. And if I hadn't heard it, I wouldn't have believe it. So right. I don't know what's going on with you and needles, but it could be something old. Right. They're also needles. Yeah. And they're fucking scary. But it's and like, that's the right reaction. It's like so weird. Yeah. It's so weird. And I know it's, if it's irrational. Because medicine, go, it's what's... Yeah, it's, it's it, literally medicine. It's helping you. Yes. And there's something about like the push and it's so instant. Yeah. And... And the reaction of people who see what happens to my body, I can't see it, but I feel it. Yeah. I feel like I'm dying. Yeah. But people who see me always unequivocally go, oh, God. Uh-oh. And I'm like, a live what? One. I, don't, I don't know. Oh, yeah, no. Like do you really, smoke weed ever? It's really weird. Maybe that's what I should do the next yeah, time I have to Yeah, just take a Xanax. Like when I got an IUD put in, it was like so bad that when I am going to go get it out, I'm just going to drug myself. I'm okay. not above that. I don't, I'm, I'm in. Here's the thing. I'm also like, I'm just going to clarify this because if it's not obvious yet with all the woo woo shit that I'm into, you know, maybe it's a California kid because like I grew up in the woods and I grew up with horses and same, same, but I'm all for any kind of plant medicine that replaces any kind of pharmaceutical because like we don't know what these chemicals are made of, but the earth handed us all these things. So yeah, I'm down. Like, Chelsea Handler was like, I'm starting a weed line. I was like, do you need someone to help you test that? <laughs> yeah, totally. Because yeah. I'm super sensitive. You, yeah. And I'll know immediately if yeah. something's too strong. As yeah. long as I don't have to drive myself anywhere, that's fine. I do think, though, just on, sorry to keep talking about your needle thing. I do think we're living in this time where 
no one's allowed to be afraid of anything. Yeah. Everyone's like, don't have fear. It's like fear is a very helpful emotion. Yes. It's what has kept our species alive. It's an appropriate reaction in a lot of situations. Yeah. And it helps us make smarter decisions and it's part of being human. I think if you're afraid of needles, you're probably your ancestors probably survived very well and you have very strong genetics and i think it's a good thing same with anxiety so you're saying i'm a viking i just yeah basically your ancestors <laughs> raped everybody oh no that wasn't <laughs> were, the part they were, I wanted they to were not to. afraid of sharp objects um probably the opposite but i just i think that we're in this place where like anxiety is bad and fear is bad it's like it's also what has kept yeah. us alive as a species so it's just i'm you're a science person like i'm always in this place i was like why are we trying so hard to get rid of all these things that yeah. are actually what made us thrive and that help us make good decisions. And if you're anxious, my thing is like, why make that go away? Maybe you're in a situation you need to get out of. Maybe yeah. your body and your brain are telling you something. Well, if yes. everyone I know that's anxious, they're in a bad relationship. It's like, because you're in a bad relationship. Exactly. You should have anxiety and that should help you get out of it. And that's like everything in me is firing on a yes right now, because I think what's interesting is we look at the symptom and not the cause yeah so all these people will say i'm super stressed i don't sleep well you know something's going on with my body and we've been taught to attack the symptom and we ignore causes women especially i think have been cultured to like stay in the relationship do the right thing be nice Mm -hmm. to everybody always show up Mm -hmm. always be fine you know even for you to say if you have this bad experience like you'll cancel your next day because you're so emotionally affected yeah it takes a long time to give yourself that kind of permission. Yeah. And I don't think the world gives us that permission. We yeah. don't have the permission to take mental health days. And I, I don't know. I, I know that for me, I experienced a version of exactly what you're talking about, where like I was in a bad circumstance, I was in a bad relationship, and I just kept looking at what I was doing wrong that was making me anxious instead of removing myself from the circumstances that were making me feel worthless and that was causing anxiety but nobody had ever taught me to look outside and say perhaps this or that dynamic isn't good for me rather than to go to the thing that I think so many women especially are cultured to do which is like well it's me I'm not enough yeah that's right I need to deal with my anxiety problem Mm -hmm. or your coworker is an asshole and is making you anxious, mm-hmm. and this is not a good match for you, and yeah. you need to set a boundary and go, you know what, I need to move to a different office, or I need to change jobs, or I need to set a boundary, or I need to distance myself from this mm-hmm. person, or this isn't a healthy friendship for me, or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, like anxiety is a really important part of our body telling us things, and it's our gut. And I think that when we ignore the, the cause, the symptom then comes out in a much greater way sideways somewhere else yeah yeah so, totally so you're like you're having a panic attack about some random thing you're like the the mouse with the orange blossom scent yeah who's running from nothing yeah because you haven't actually dealt with the thing that's making you feel like you need to run yeah you're telling yourself like this is fine this job is fine this yeah. relationship's okay yeah you do the thing where you're like well everyone says all relationships are work and it's They're like, hard well, it's work it's supposed to be like this but like what kind of work yeah because if it feels like yeah. torture yes you yeah. know and and we we just deplete you yeah we we push things out sideways and then we feel like that sideways thing that quote makes no sense yeah is the thing we need to deal with we're also not designed to live like this 
It's like, right. I, it's just, I, I can't believe neurology is not taught in schools. We're not designed to look at screens all day. We're not designed to have cars driving past us every second. Our primordial brain thinks it's like lions or something dangerous. We're yeah. not designed to be engaged. Like, we're just not designed for any of this. So it's like we have, our neurology has not evolved to be okay with any of it. Yeah. The way that we consume news, the, everyone should have anxiety. Yeah. About everything all the time. Well, we've created a if, culture. Otherwise, you're just not paying attention. <laughs> like, right. It's so crazy to me that people are like, I just need to deal with my anxiety. Like, have you seen the news that yeah. your anxiety is not going to go away for a while? If you don't have it, you're numb or a sociopath. I just don't yeah. know how anyone can not have anxiety right now. Yeah. You know, anxiety is how people get motivated to change their circumstances. And it's an important engine. Right. And I was on Instagram, people are like, fuck fear fuck anxiety it's like no those are tools that can help us make decisions and see red flags and get motivated yeah i think for me it's i've had to learn to make everything a little more of an adjustment in the middle Mm -hmm. because this whole thing of like fuck fear well that doesn't work yeah but so what i started to say to myself is like very often fear is a liar yeah i will feel fear around this Mm -hmm which I don't need to. What am I actually afraid of right now? Yeah. And why is it coming out over here? Is it good fear or is it a rational old fear? Yeah. How do you think learning, because I think it's so cool that in your last book, you talked so much about codependency. Yeah. And, and we were talking about all of this neurology stuff. And I know that so much of your research around all of these things together brought you there and brought you down that path. And I guess I'm just curious. You said in an interview that I loved, you were like, yeah, it's the first chapter of my book. I'm like the first 10 chapters of my life. And I was like, (laughs) same. (laughs) I get that. I'm curious because I think when you're in a place, it seems like you are, and, and I love to speak there, where you're so in the work and like you've gotten to the other side of some things. I kind of like to rewind with people who might be just starting to look who are like, I feel these emotions. I have these things. Mm -hmm. Like, how do you even begin to determine that codependency is a thing in your life? And for you, as you said, it was this condition where you couldn't tolerate not being liked. You couldn't tolerate having low self-esteem. And so you'd focus on the needs of other people so that you didn't have to focus on your own stuff. Yep. That's, I mean, that's a really big crux of it. And something interesting that you said that I always want to delineate is I think a lot of people look at me and they go, she doesn't have low self-esteem. There's a difference between low self-esteem and confidence. And there's a difference between low self-esteem and like charisma or charm. And oftentimes the loudest, most gregarious, most outgoing people have the lowest self-esteem because Mm -hmm. they're trying to overcompensate for something that they think that they're lacking, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of times there's a little bit of a discrepancy there and people are like, wait a second, what are all these like people like, you know, big personalities doing talking about their low self-esteem? Like what's this Mm -hmm. bit, you know, like for attention? But it really is, I think, something worth talking about because I think it takes a lot of people a long time to understand it because they're like, what do you mean? I have all these friends. I must have high self-esteem. You know, it took me a long time to be like, I'm a stand-up comedian with low self-esteem. Like that doesn't add up because I'm going like, I'm going to go talk for an hour in front of thousands of people. I must have high self-esteem. So that took me a long time. And yeah, I mean, the definition of codependence that I think works the best for me is the inability to tolerate the discomfort of others. Mm. And that is manifests everything from, oh, I have to go to this baby shower or else she's going to get mad at me. I've got to swing by this party. Oh, my friend's calling about her breakup again. I have to answer. 
Uh, I've mm. been on the phone with this person for 20 minutes. I don't know how to get off. Like, are you the person that ends the phone conversation or is the other person? You know, mm. do you find yourself involved in other people's drama? The three M's is a big one, micromanaging, martyring, and mothering. Do you find yourself doing things for other people that they can do for themselves, even though they're complete adults? Do you think you're the only person that can get a task done? Do you think it's not going to get done if you don't do it yourself? You know, do you find yourself exhausted and sick? I mean, people, 12-step programs for codependents and Al-Anons and 12-step programs for, you know, AA and NA, Narcotics Anonymous and everything, they're all the same sort of general steps. But basically what we say is that alcoholics are addicted to alcohol, drug addicts are addicted to drugs, Al-Anons and codependents are addicted to people, other addicts, talking, manipulating, just as dangerous a lifestyle, you know, whereas alcoholics might drink and drive, Al-Anons might text and drive because we have this sense of urgency. We have to respond to this text right now. I have to respond to this right now. I have to engage with this right now. Like I have to handle this right now. There's this sense of urgency all the time. And perfectionism is another really big part of it. Mm -hmm. Can you leave a dish in your sink for a couple days? Or do you never touch it? A big part of the way our brains work is perfectionism leads to procrastination, which leads to paralysis. So it's if I can't do it perfectly, I'm not going to do it at all. And I kind of avoid it and get paralyzed, you know, so there's lots of different parts of how codependence works. A lot of it is entrenchment of being not being able to just like be friends with somebody in a way that's healthy and has boundaries. It's like we have to be best friends you know for me it was like really hard to like go to a party and not leave with plans with like four people to go on a hike (laughs) you know what I mean and just getting like too close to someone before you really know them and that was a really big problem for me it was just like (sighs) I had to be like so close with everybody and I had to be everyone's like best friend and first call and I was gravitating towards people that didn't make me feel good about myself or people who were like a mess or guys that were like going through a breakup or just people that you know generally created so much chaos that it helped me to focus on something other than myself and my own pain or grief or stuff. And also it's quite simply kind of an adrenaline addiction codependence because you're like, this person needs this and then I have to go drive this person to the airport and then I have to make this phone call and then you overbook yourself. That's another big one. A codependent relapse is, and it's so funny because our interview was at 10 and I was here at nine, which is, that's not at all what it was. It's oftentimes we book ourselves so tightly Mm -hmm. Because we need to achieve so much in order to mm-hmm. feel good about ourselves that we're end up being sort of late and forgetting things and dropping things and and then our life gets more chaotic and more chaotic. So a big part of you know self care and recovery of codependence is like if you need to leave thirty minutes early, you leave forty five minutes early, and you have realistic, not mm. delusional uh, understanding of how reality works. You might have to stop and pee. You might need to get a like we book ourselves really tightly. You know, these are like little yeah. things that I think a lot of people don't associate with codependence, but it's all this hydra that kind of goes back to the same thing. Yep. So I had all these little things that I my story. It was like I'm just really busy. If you say that more than three times a week, read about codependence. Yeah. (laughs) Because busyness is like a pretty big symptom of it. Or like, I like to be helpful, which is like, I I like to be people's mothers so that they need me so that I know I'm worthy because something that happened in my nine-year-old brain told me I wasn't. But she's 40. Yeah. Why does she need your help? She can help herself. She's got Nobody wants your help. It's like, that's the other thing. It's like, <laughs> as soon as you start helping somebody, people just resent you. It's insulting and it's patronizing. Like when mm. you start helping somebody, I mean, it's a case by case thing. Sure. But it's like when you start helping someone, you're implying, number one, you can't handle yourself and 
I'm so uncomfortable focusing on me and helping myself that I'm going to just start micromanaging you. It's like I'm using you like a drug to feel good about myself. Mm. You know, codependents derive their self-esteem by helping other people to get their approval and to get like a points. So like codependents, you really have to take an inventory of your motives and make sh- see what they are. Are you doing it to be manipulative? Are you doing it to be liked? Are you doing it to distract yourself? Are you doing it out of obligation because you think you have to? You really have to like get in there and look at your motives. You can be of service, but you can't help. That's kind of what happens. Yes, and there's a fine line. Very fine line. And when you start to see what is what lives on either side, it becomes so clear to you which is which. Mm-hmm. Was there like some crazy thing or just when you looked at it sort of thing that shocked you about your own behavior that was kind of a wake-up call Mm -hmm. like were you able to look and say oh my codependency caused me to do that yeah to behave this way yes great question and there's so many and I don't want to name like the such extreme ones that are going to make people go I'm not that crazy because I've had like family in rehab and I was like bringing them food and sweaters and stuff in rehab and I like Neil Brennan has a joke about this but you might be codependent if all your relationships end with you saying if someone asks you how it ended it's just like I just loved him too much I think I just <laughs> loved him too much it's just, you know like that's always sort of like what ends up happening with us for me I couldn't get out of relationships I would stay in them like a year too long because I just could, I could not tolerate the discomfort of others, Mm -hmm. which is so ironic because you're wasting a year of someone's life. Yes. It's not kind. And when I woke up to that habit for me, I have that like perfectionism, procrastination, paralyzing thing. And then I have that staying thing. It's not nice. No, it's horrible. And in your brain, you're like, well, we're, you know, this is, this is my partner, but this is also my best friend. And we're going to, we're going to get there together. We'll figure out how to undo this together. And I'm not going to fail. We'll catch up to this. This isn't for us, but we should be able to end it lovingly. And if I just end it, it won't be loving and he'll be angry. And all of it is a mess. He'll be angry. Okay. I'll be hurt. Okay. Are you the one that doesn't ever get to be hurt in life? You're the one that like whoever promised us we were never going to get hurt and no one ever like it's just all life has ever been. Yet we Mm -hmm. have this sort of it's delusional really. And it's a denial thing that we have. And I grew up in a home with mental illness called borderline personality disorder, which really Mm -hmm. does a number on you because you're so afraid of someone exploding at any moment. You want to make sure it's always, you know, 70 degrees and everything's fine. And you've got your drink at five o'clock, you know. So I really grew up thinking that I had to kind of walk on eggshells and manage everybody's feelings all the time Mm -hmm. but like that's you trying to be someone else's higher power and not letting them have the dignity of their own experience and quite frankly treating them like a child and infantilizing them but i think when you learn that as a child it's very hard to see as an adult that that's what you're doing totally you know you're you're so in this space of wanting to be gentle and and wanting to make sure you do it right and it takes a long time to go through it almost clinically to go Oh, I see that. Yeah. Like at the time that I did it and then I did it again and then I did it again and I stayed a year too long every time. Did it. I didn't see it. No. I I didn't know. But now looking back and being able to analyze, it's like, you know, hindsight is 2020, like cliches are cliches because they're true. But for you to have figured this out by this mm-hmm. age, it's also a miracle. Do you know what I mean? I mean like, same. I'm so glad we're talking about it. I Yeah, I had someone in my family get really sick and I was forced to go into Al-Anon. I, I, I thought I was nailing it. Like I mm. thought I was super highly functioning. I had so many friends. I was in three relationships at once. I was like, this is, I'm, you know, multitasking. Like, but 
I you remember were like, look at me. I was go. like, I'm fucking, I had no idea. Like, I just thought everybody else was crazy. That's codependent 101. Mm. If you've met more than two assholes in one day, maybe you're the asshole. Yeah. Maybe you're the one with impossibly high expectations. Maybe you're mm-hmm. the one victimizing yourself because you're doing too much for someone else and then you feel bad when they don't reciprocate. St- stop. Mm-hmm. Stop helping anyone and you'll stop feeling bad, you know, because we're like, well, I just, I bought this person this gift and I went to this person's birthday party and I commented on this person's photo and I helped this person and I loaned this person money and then you feel like shit because you're doing too much for other people. Like CODA is a lot of stop giving, stop helping. Nobody wants your help. Turn it in. Yes, because you're just going to end up victimizing yourself and setting Mm -hmm. yourself up to feel hurt later. But I think when you're that kid who learns to take care, to be the middleman, to to smooth things over, to be the entertainment, you gain as a child value from being good at helping other people or smoothing out other people's stuff. But you're getting your internal needs Yes. met externally and you're using what you're doing is you're using other people and it doesn't yes. seem that way because I just all. bought you a $300 candle so how am I using you I just did this nice thing for you you know but one of the first things I heard in a 12-step meeting for codependence is this person got up and was explaining this amazing speaker said like people pleasing is a form of assholery it just like clicked for me it was just like wait a second I thought I, my story was I'm so nice That was my story about myself. I'm just, I'm so nice to everyone. I'm just like the nicest person, yet I'm always mad at them because they're not as fulfilling my expectation of how nice they should be back to me based on how nice I was to that. You know what I mean? So I was always like, I can't believe people just aren't more grateful about how nice I am, you know? And then I just realized like, what are you doing? You're just kind of like being a dick and setting themselves you know, like codependence breeds resentment. That's the whole thing. Yeah. So the nicer you are to someone else or in your head, the more it's nice, the more you're just breeding a future resentment. Yeah. So just stop doing half the shit you're doing. I remember I heard in a meeting once in Christmas, this woman was like, my goal this year is to buy half as many gifts as I bought last year. And it was just like such a simple little goal. Wow. And then the next year, she's like, I'm buying half as many gifts. And then a year later, she's like, I'm buying no gifts for anyone for Christmas. And guess what? No one gives a shit. Like you could write someone a nice card no and it would be meaningful. Go to, to coffee. Them. Cool. Hang out with them. Yeah. No one's like, Sophia didn't get me a gift. No. And if they do that, they got to go. Right. <laughs> That's not something that should be in your life anyway. Right. So it's like, stop doing all the shit you're doing. So for me, it's always like do 50% of what you think you should do. So like on Sunday night, I go through my calendar and I have nine things planned and 14 dinners and 17 drinks and 18 shoe store openings. Then I have to go through and just go, nope, 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 nope. Because I truly think those are good ideas. The concept of saying no is still really hard for me. That's a big coda mm-hmm. thing. Yeah. It's just your first instinct is yes. Mm-hmm. And so I have these like stock things by my computer that I say. So what's so interesting about you saying that back in 2012, well, it was 2011, but we were gearing into New Year's of 2012 and I was sitting with one of my best friends from forever and we were in my kitchen and both of us were having that moment, like talking about the things we felt paralyzed from doing that Mm -hmm. we wanted to do. Like, why haven't we written that thing and why haven't I gone here and why didn't I say that thing I needed to say? And and we both were like really in it Mm. and we were like, you know, Fear is paralyzing us. Again, fear in the wrong place Mm -hmm. is stopping us from doing what we want to do. Be afraid of the lion. Don't be afraid of the car. Let's figure figure this out. So we decided that 2012 was going to be our year of yes. 
and we coined it and we started talking about it and it was like every trip I got asked on I went on yeah every fun adventure on a Saturday it would be like should we go hike in, in like Malibu Canyon it's an hour away and it's already 11 fuck it yes let's go wow and it was the most beautiful thing and yeah. I remember like Six months into the year, I started doing these non-denominational Shabbat dinners at my house. So like a friend who was agnostic would like read something. A friend who was Jewish would read something. A friend who grew up Catholic, a friend who was Muslim, like all these people would bring stuff. Maybe it would be like, sometimes it was just like so obnoxiously LA and like someone would read a a John Muir poem. Like Like a Scientologist would get up. Only thing not welcome. (laughs) I'm like, if you traffic people, you're not welcome here. But other denominations, cool. Cool, cool, cool. So it was like June or early July of the year and a bunch of friends were over and one of my buddies looked at me and he goes, I'm having this like, things are amazing. We're catching up. We haven't seen each other in two months. There's 50 people in my house. It's like beautiful. And he, and he goes, have you heard it's the year of yes? And Jenny and I looked at each other and we were like, oh my God, it's made it into a thing. And, and a friend of mine was like, you should write a book about this. And yeah. I was like, who the fuck is going to read this book from like this girl from TV called the year of yes? No way, that's her? Three years later, Shonda Rhimes wrote it. And then I read Elizabeth Gilbert's book, Big Magic, that talks about how when you have an idea, an idea has a soul. And if you ignore it, it goes somewhere else. That's right. And I was like, if Shonda Rhimes and I were sharing the same like primordial idea soup, (laughs) it's like the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. Ah, And I need to talk to her about it. But that's that's not the point. The interesting thing about having a year of yes as an often paralyzed person. Yeah. Emotionally anyway. Yeah. Is that saying yes to so many things actually was my key to learning how to say no. Yeah, sure. Because I realized that the like Saturday adventure into the woods with my friends fills me and the, and the seven shoe store openings and the friends brand and the candle launch and the thing that doesn't. And it's just as easy for me to support people in a public manner because we now have the luxury of all these social channels and these things, but I don't have to drive across town. I don't have to go from Hollywood to the Palisades at six o'clock and sit in two and a half hours of traffic to be somewhere for 30 minutes, to hug someone, to take a photo, to leave the thing, to get home so that I can do my homework before. It's like I had to lean into my desire to experience in order to learn the difference between my actual yeses and my noes. And I realized I'd been saying yes to things that were a hard no for me for so long. Unless it's a hell yes, it's a no. Yeah. It's just like, that's my, and I quote that in my book. It's someone else said that. It's great. Like, it's just for me, my thing now is usually the answer is no. And there's also, I'm going to let you know in three days. That's just a rule I have to make because in the moment, I just don't know Mm -hmm. because my codependence, like you don't cure it, you manage it. It's like an eating disorder or whatever addiction, you manage it. So for me, my thing is, thank you so much for the invite. I'll let you know in a couple days. Yeah. And then I can sit with it. I can sit on it. I go, do I really want to drive to Culver City at 2.15? Or maybe there's an iteration that I haven't thought of, which is like, I guess I'll do this, but if it's on a Saturday and if we can FaceTime, you know, like I just have to yeah. figure out the iteration that works the best for me. I have my stock answers. If the answer is no, it might just be, hey, now it's not a good time for me. Can we circle back in a couple months? Hey, I'm at capacity right now. My plate is full. I'd love to revisit in February. Like I just, I have my kind of stock things now. But I also, I think a really important part of saying yes is being able to know that you, this is a big al thing is you can change your mind. Yeah. My thing used to be, once you say yes, it's over. It's yep. signed, it's sealed, it's delivered. I now can go, hey, I'm so sorry. 
I thought about it. I'm now looking at my schedule. This just no longer works for me. I hope we can do something else in the future. Yeah. And, and that's, that's okay. okay. <laughs> and people are allowed to have their feelings and they're allowed to be mad and it's allowed to be inconvenient for them. And that's part of their journey. Yeah. And every time we're uncomfortable, we grow in some way and don't get in the way of someone else in their growth. Yeah. Let them have their reactions. Let them have their consequences mm-hmm. so that they can grow or go through whatever they need to go through. Mm-hmm. Like if they're mad at me because I couldn't do something, that's their shit. That's just yeah. not my shit. It's just literally none of my business what their reaction is, you yeah. know? Because when you do something you don't want to do, you lie. Yes. And it took me a really long time to understand that. When you're going, hanging out with friends that you maybe don't get along with or you're going to a party, you don't, would you, if someone invited you, like if you invited someone to your birthday party and they didn't want to come and they showed up anyway, how bummed would you be? Also, they'd ruin it because totally. they'd be in a bad mood and then I'd be worried about their mood instead of enjoying my birthday. I love it when people say no to me because then I always know that when they say yes, they really want to be there. Yeah. Or when they compliment me, I can actually believe it. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Like I love being in friendships where people go like, you know what? I'm sorry. I just really don't feel like going to the beach today. Can I cancel? And I'm like, totally. And then when they do show up to something, I know that you know they're they 100. I never there. have to like worry about their motives. Yeah. I will I say- I know where I stand. I know you really wanted to be here because you're I here. Know, I say no to everything. I'm so happy. <laughs> it's a very big deal. Thank you for coming. But I did say yes right away. And I, then I was like three days later, I was like, I still want to do this. Oh my God, that's this great. This is so exciting. Look at that. Yeah. Do you, looking back now, I, I really sidetracked myself on childhood questions, but did you have teachers who really inspired you as a kid? Were you doing comedy or theater or things as a yeah, kid? Like, yeah, how did that- I, I really, my childhood was, it did, you know, people are always like, how do you become a comedian? And I'm not joking. Like, you do just have to have a bad childhood. Like, do you, do you, something has to happen to you that makes you need attention and validation from strangers. I don't think that's something that you can just like learn. And that's something that is a, you can either stand on stage in front of a bunch of drunk strangers and want their approval or not. I don't think that's damage you can do later in life. But I was very dramatic and I wanted to be a journalist and I interned at news stations and I went to, yeah, I went to Annenberg at Penn and I was going to be a journalist. I was at Annenberg at USC. No way. Hey. So I was like going to be a journalist. My I was obsessed with Naomi Wolf. I was obsessed with Upton Sinclair. Like I mm-hmm. was going to like my big thing is shining light on thing that no one's talking about. And yeah. this is my thing and justice. I was obsessed with justice. Most comedians are and journalists. And when I was at Penn, there was a professor named Carolyn Marvin, and she taught a class on the First Amendment and freedom of speech. And she mm-hmm. would burn the flag every year and get arrested. And we would talk about, you know, why is it not okay to burn the flag? And it is okay for women to wear bikinis and that are flag. American flag. Right. And are Confederate bikinis okay? And, you know, just a, these really difficult conundrums that are sort of perfect for a comedian to, you know, that's where we like to sort of be on the edge around something or make an unpopular argument and figure out a way to make it funny. And she played George Carlin's The Words You Can't Say, the Carlin versus Pacifica case on why you can say asshole or jackass, but you can't say asshole and just sort of all this. And I was like really fascinated by our morals and why you can say jackass and not asshole on television like shit like that just fascinated me and so that's when I started doing stand-up because I always why you can call someone a bitch on television but you can't say shit you can't say God you can't say Jesus all of it you know so I just got really upset I always had written like weird little essays like in journals about like very unpopular arguments and that's a lot of what 
stand-up is, making mm-hmm. an unpopular argument and figuring out a way to defend it or exploring things that most people don't give, you know, two seconds of attention to. And, you know, like my whole next special is defending sex robots, you know, probably an unpopular argument, you know, but... I can't wait to get into that We'll part. see. Yeah, yeah, we'll see. So that professor, I think, is the one that had an impact on me. But I always kind of just found myself in conversations taking a very unpopular stance. (laughs) And maybe it's because I was alone so much as a kid. I don't know. But I definitely just I like to not just agree with everyone on everything. But I also think that's so important. That's how we develop our critical thinking abilities. And if we didn't look at every disagreement as an argument, Mm -hmm. but rather as a debate, like let's have a spirited debate. And I don't, it doesn't have to be my opinion where I'm trying to figure out my opinion. And how are we going to find that out if we don't like, this is what's in, you know, I'm working on a show about this. Like, this is why I don't, this canceling every speaker at every college because they made one mistake and canceling people because they, you know, it's just, it's not healthy for our brain development you know it's like Rutgers they boycotted Condoleezza Rice it's like you don't have to agree with everything she's ever done or everything she's ever said I get a little bit tricky about like paying people and culture I don't think should be like paid to be on campus you know but people should be exposed to stuff to know I don't fucking agree with that and here's why you know we're infantilizing ourselves Mm. to not even be exposed to things that we disagree with you know because then what do we how do we know what our enemy is how do we know what we believe if we don't know what we disagree with. So, you know, maybe that's just a comedian mindset, but I do believe a lot of people shouldn't exist. But if they do exist, I should kind of know what I'm up against. Yeah, I understand you know? that. And it's so tricky for me. It's like, I I personally would never want Ann Coulter to be invited to a college campus. No, I agree, I think, but I'm kind of Lisa Rice. Sure, I but think yeah, that's different. I agree with yeah. you because I'm like, wait a minute. She also served our country honorably. You don't have to agree with every decision she ever made. How could we ever agree with every decision any politician then go in has and ever say, made? Like, hey, I have a question. Yeah. What, what did you do with Iraq? Why? How would you do it differently? Now, yes. go in and challenge her. Ask her a question. Challenge, ask questions. Also, the fact that most of us who've never had to make a life or death decision for other American citizens judge how it's like come on yeah you know the whole thing I want to learn from those people and learn from their mistakes yeah whether or not they're and and their successes whether or not they're people I agree with but that's so interesting so what happens from Annenberg to like roasts writers rooms comedy specials like how does that happen I don't know that's really I I I came out here I did that show punked yeah you know that happened and then I started doing stand-up from there and then I had this weird knack for writing like super mean jokes (laughs) which is not something I'm super proud of it's kind of a dubious honor but just from growing up in a homes that were all passive aggressive and and we showed love by insulting each other I had to be really sharp in the moment it was just yeah I started writing jokes and submitting to the roasts and they wouldn't hire me they said it's five dudes they don't hire women and I kind of just was like I wrote 16 pages of jokes for the I think it was the the flavor flavor roast and there were a couple jokes in it that they wanted to use so they had to hire me and they thought they were just gonna hire me for the week and I just kept just working harder than anybody I would just like show up with like 10 pages of jokes every day and I was just up all night just trying to and then they extended me a week and then I did a roast for like a charity roast we filmed it and they were like okay you can be on the roast so I booked one I think it was Larry the Cable Guy and then they said no never mind we already have a girl we don't need a girl so I like got hired and then I got heaven like heaven forbid a, there's it more was than just one God for, the, the box room. has been checked stand down yeah we're good and then so it took 
a little bit of time and then I did the Joan Rivers roast and that I think was the first one that and then that's what got me the hour special I had already had my special kind of ready and then yeah I, don't I know. have to tell you so my dad was a <clears throat> I mean not was as a, he's still with us but he's retired um, my dad was a photographer for I don't know 40 50 years oh, how cool. old is my dad and he photographed Joan Rivers for like 40 years yeah. and when I told my parents that you were coming on the podcast my dad was like god her roast was funny Joan loved that oh, and it was did. just like it was like so sweet my parents were like so jazzed about this and that uh, yeah. makes me so, so happy I yeah. mean I think it's important you know like as we're in this moment of like there's not enough women on television there's not enough women in movies concur all over it but like let's not forget the women that did like I'm kind of yeah. obsessed with like when people are like there's no women in movies I wonder if Demi Moore is just like I made like a billion dollars <laughs> for Hollywood in the 90s like I sort of every movie I made was a giant hit I mean granted I think we need to look at like you we know need, like more than her but yeah, yeah, yeah of course but I think what's happening yeah. there is that because guys are like, what do you mean? Plenty of women are in movies. And we have to go, oh, yeah, no, we know. But we want there to be like other types of roles. Well, and then it's also helpful to show them things like, yeah, but when women have a hundred speaking parts out of a thousand. Yeah, that's right. And when like two and movies. And what are they saying? Yeah, when two movies pass the Bedshell test. Yes. It's like, you, yes. It, and we get why they may not see it, but we would yeah. like better. I remember talking about pay equity and talking about how women of color make less money than white women, which is just true. Yes. It's just true. true. Like math. It's funny that one plus one equals two always. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. And, and I remember talking about that like, you know, on Instagram on the equal pay day thing. And somebody had the nerve to be like, Oprah's a billionaire. And I was like, you know, one black billionaire and you think that things are okay for black women in the world? Like, oh my God. And I feel a little bit like that when men say like, look at, you know, Jennifer Lawrence won yeah, an yeah, Oscar. Yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. like, yeah, but if you, <laughs> you're, you're not looking at the if landscape. If you could only name one, yeah. maybe that's our problem. Like, guys, come on. I know. And I think, and it was recently having a conversation with a movie executive guy. And he was just like, look, we're offering, you know, jobs to women direct movies. But like, they can't do it. They keep saying no. And that was what I was worried the next problem was going to be, is women are going to be offered jobs, but they can't take them because they're in the jobs in New Zealand for eight months and there's no childcare. So it's like there's, it's this tricky thing in this moment where it's like, okay, now people are finally, I don't care what your motive is, if you're being forced to do it or shamed to do it, fine for now. Yeah. But you're being forced to hire women or you're finally are hiring women just because the first one says no because she just had a baby and you don't then get childcare on the set. Yeah. Make it possible for her to say yes. Yes, because if you're offering her a movie for eight months in New Zealand and she can't bring her children, you're actually not offering it to her. You're not, it's not a real offer. It's not a real offer. So unless there's childcare on sets, I, I don't know how we can have this conversation, yeah. you know, because women have to be in a position where they can actually say yes or are, the work days are crazy. It's like working yeah. 12 hours is a crazy thing. Like how about we, you know, sit down with the line producers and say, hey, what if we're having eight hour days or break them up or have childcare on yeah, set? Yeah, French hours. Totally, or figure out a way that, you know, if a woman is three months pregnant and it's a three-month job, that she can say yes and she can go to her doctor's appointments and we can figure out ways to shoot nights or whatever nights for a pregnant woman. Well, I've obviously yeah. never been pregnant. Um, but figuring out a way that she can, you know, someone can stand in for her for two hours when she goes and gets her sonogram. I don't know. I'm just yeah. making up doctor's appointments for fake pregnant women in my head. But, well, but yes, it, it just shouldn't be that complicated. Yeah, the hours are designed for yeah. dudes. Yeah. You know, and the environment is designed for dudes. So how does that work now? Because you 
you know, you do run writers. I mean, you created your own show. You created Two Broke Girls. You've, you've like, you've gone on and on and done all of these incredible things. Like, how does it work for you to be a showrunner? Yeah. For me now, my thing is I just sit down with my line producer and I sit down with all my staff and I'm like, if you need to leave, leave. I'm usually done in a writer's room at five for parents so that they can, I mean, every woman, when they come in, we have a very frank conversation where, what's that? (laughs) want to write a show it's well no you it's a nightmare and I sometimes go home and end up doing more work but the idea is like I want moms to say yes and I moms I'm just this is maybe sexist make the best employees (laughs) because they can get so much done. They are like so high functioning. You just develop the skill to be able to multitask and do things. I've been watching some of my closest friends become moms over the last two years. And like women who I already thought were superhuman have leveled up in a way where I'm just like, what is happening? And also could we give moms control of everything Everything. just for 10 years this is a total let's just do a social experiment and i swear to god the whole world would just everyone will be be fed everything will be handled every all the trains will run on time it's like and just and this is a generalization obviously don't don't drag me in the comments i know like everybody moms make incredible directors they're just great at managing tantrums and emotions and everyone's fed and everyone's at yeah. lunch on time and we get all the coverage we need and they're just uh-huh. calm cool and collected through everything you know it's just like so for me I just want to yeah. make sure that moms stay and yeah. say yes and yeah. that I can promise them you will be done at 3 30 every day if you need to leave at 3 30 to go pick up your kid fine because a lot of times mom and what I try to do my hours as 9 a.m to 4 there's this weird for no reason at all thing in LA where everything starts at 10. I don't know why. There's a lot of like outdated obsolete systems in LA that were I think invented by men that I think women need to just start thinking about because women usually drop their kids off at school at 8, 8.30. So then they have this weird hour and a half window and then you start work at 10 and then their kid needs to be picked up at 3 or 3.30 or if they have after school 4, 4.30. I'm learning a lot about this. So I like to start my writer's room at 9 yeah. so moms can come directly from and then go pick up their kids from school at 3.30. And I want people to go home. I want them to have lives. Yeah. Like for art to imitate life, people have to have a life. a life. And you want them to go home and fight with their husbands. And I just like that. I want to put on a billboard for art to imitate life. You have to have a life. You have to. We have this thing in our head where we're just work all day, work yeah. all day. What are you writing about? Where are you? Where are you getting your ideas? Like yeah, what I, do you I have made to that. Say? I made that mistake for the longest time. The first TV show I did was to answer your question about the codependent rock bottom. It was really that I couldn't fire people. I couldn't say no to people. I was so worried about employees and people liking. What show me. was this on? This was an NBC show that I did that okay. I was on, and I was so much more concerned with everybody liking me than making a good product. That I, you know, I was just like, I just I can't say no to that. I don't want to say no to anyone's pitch. I don't want mm. anyone to be mad at me. And I forgot about not wanting the viewers to be mad at me. <laughs> I was just so I wanted to be like so bad I was like how come I'm the writers that are going for drinks how come I'm not invited I just want that like I was just like so trying to micromanage everybody's feelings but you know to that end I was working so much and so hard that when people would pitch in the room like oh what if the character like you know goes to this bridal shower I was like no one goes to a bridal shower and they're like yeah they do you don't because you don't have a fucking life and it limits the number of stories you can tell the kind of experiences you can have and the kind of emotional bandwidth that you're available to write with if you don't actually go out and make mistakes and have a life and go to the grocery store and 
you know, run into strangers and fight with homeless people or whatever it is, you know, you can't, wow. you're limited in your ability as an artist if you don't have a life, which is so hard for me because I tend to hide behind work and I'm working, but I'm in front of my computer and I just have to work all you're the like, time. You're like, no, no, I'm working. This is why I'm not doing something else. Sometimes the best writing is just going to the mall and walking around. Yeah. Some of the best stand up, some of the best any art is wow. just like going to the park and like starting a conversation with a stranger. Yes. You know, and we just don't do that. Yeah. You know, so I'm really trying to force myself. And this is so pathetic, but like twice a week, I'll just be like, I'm going to go to the movies. <laughs> just to get out. Because it's like, we're just like, I'm just going to watch my Netflix. Or I'm going to watch my Amazon and I'm just going to stay in and I'm just going to cocoon. But I'm just like, you know, the other day I went to like, I was like, I'm going to go to the Rose Bowl in Pasadena. And I'm going to like. Oh my God. Anytime you want to go. My favorite place. Oh my God. I, and I'm the I'm crazy a person. I, you don't even. I will that, show. I have a store in my house of antique I, courses. I will show you the uh, the cataloged online photographic storage unit you know, that I have. It's about, what, I have a it, problem. I would. I can't. No. I can't. But Etsy. I can't. No. No. My fiance had to stop. Take it off my phone. Yeah. No. I had can't to delete stop. the app. Can't stop. Cherish. I have a real problem with. Don't First even know about it. Why did you do that? I love it. I'm like, never. Mind. I can't stop buying mid-century modern owls. That's my current. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Oh my obsession. god! I have to show you pictures of the store. Okay. Okay. Uh, on this on my later... drive home from Colorado, I go to Colorado every Memorial Day with my best friends. It's like our thing. Cool. Where in Colorado? We go to Telluride. Yeah. There's, this, there's a documentary film festival there called Mountain Film. Yeah. And it's four days long. Oh, and cool. And it's literally just docs and short films and environmental films and adventure cool. films. And it's like the thing that recharges me to like do the work. And we've been going for 10 years and like we started as eight friends and now we're like 40 people from extending friend circles and people's kids and i don't know how to do things it's honestly come with us you can join if you want to think about it for three days before you can don't talk to me about it for a while i want to but yes we road trip and like this year we drove through sedona stayed in sedona hiked in the red rocks then went to telluride we spend like you know six seven days and then we come back but the day back is always like a nightmare because we do it in one shot and so it's like 15 hours but you just power through it yeah because on the way home you're not like excited to go somewhere you just want to be in your own bed but we found this little cafe this year on the way home that is a hoarder's dream and it's just owls it's just <laughs> owl stuff I have pictures of it I don't remember the name but I literally have so many pictures in my phone I will show you I will go and there. everything is for sale Oh my God. I will take you. No way. I will will take you. (laughs) It is ridiculous. I love that shit. This happened for a reason. I love that shit. It's all I care about. I just, I think it's like, it's weird for me. Like I, I grew up poor and I think it took me so long to understand, like make your space special, you know, Mm. like your office, your home, whatever it is. I don't spend money on shoes, as you can tell, or purses, as you can tell. Thank you. I dressed up for you. And uh, little things that just, Spark joy. I yeah. did it. I did them. I, it took me this long to quote Marie Kondo. What? Um, I I don't want to. I, I have a couple more questions about work things. Please. I think, oh my god. Well, I just think that like your whole career is so inspiring, and really? as a person who is paralyzed to make my own things, oh. I'm like hoping to absorb some of your motivation by osmosis. Oh wow! As I deal with my codependency paralyzing side effect of whatever really? the fuck my childhood was. So I'm curious about what the experience was like doing Roseanne and like oh yeah totally I can talk about that coming to a head yeah I don't give a shit I mean I'll like 
I know for me, like, I'll just say to you, Please. like, growing up, that was one of my favorite shows to watch. Like, Roseanne, Still. Murphy Brown, Still. Uh, Wheel of Fortune. I was, like, weirdly obsessed <laughs> with whatever. I was a small wonder girl. Puzzles were just fun. Yeah. <laughs> small wonder was really Mr. Good. Belvedere was, oh my God. was oh my God. no stranger to my home. Same. The fact that that's a show. Imagine, I might, one of my favorite games is pitch that show now. Oh. Go pitch Mr. Belvedere right now. Right. <laughs> say, uh, Sophia went crazy. Yeah, um, they'd be like, you want a what? Uh, yeah, I'm like, your so pardon? Good. It's a child that's a robot. Um, so after the election, I don't have to tell you, it was a lot, you know, and I went to this kind of like, what do we do symposium? And, you know, people were like, let's make cupcakes and let's Planned Parenthood, which yes, of course. But I was just like, let's move to Texas and vote there. Like, I just yeah. was like, I, I, I just, you know, um, and we all express our things in different ways. And um, I didn't know what to do with myself. And I didn't know how to express myself. And I was sort of learning about what happened. And my brother lives in London. So I kind of learned about Brexit. And I kind of was like, okay, this was a thing. And then uh, simultaneously, I mean, a couple months prior, in fact, Michelle Obama did this conference call with showrunners. Um, I don't know who's on it. I'm still like trying to find who else was on the call with me. But it was a, a conference call. And I dressed up for it. I put on my like forest green uh, uh, Max Mara blazer. I was very mm. excited to talk to her. And she explained, this was her last year in the White House, and she said that we can now link marriage equality passing to Will and Grace. Yeah. And first I had heard that in writer's rooms, we kind of run around and go like, we're not curing cancer. If I can put the joke up, who cares? Just cast this person. It's like you're, it's sort of don't overthink it. We're not curing cancer. That's literally what we say. It's not rocket science. And then when I heard that, culture, I was like, we need to really be more careful about what we put on television and what we say, etc. And were you? What were you working on at that time? Were you still running Two Broke Girls, or were you done with that? Like, where Two Broke where Girls? Where does this find you? I think was done. I was touring. I was doing stand up. I had written a book at that point. I had just done. This a, is when you wrote Everything's Fine, or I'm fine. I'm right? fine. Yeah, yeah. Uh, everything's fine. That should be the next one. <laughs> next one is everything's fine everything's fine not guys. just me i swear that's like the perfect yeah. title i'm fine another life uh, yeah uh, everything's that. fine um and i had re- uh done a movie about neurology called the female brain so i had just done and like you did that with neil brennan i did who you love to talk about yes, he's so the cool. best so he's the greatest i mean i don't know him personally but like I've, you should oh, have you would love fan. it you would you great. would love yeah. The best. Allison will tell you I'm like a very shameless fanboy and like when things that I'm excited about come up, my face gets a little red and oh, I'm like God. I'm like, he's really great and I'm like, I should calm down. I'm Neil's like, the best and he's the smartest and I'm so lucky that that we got to do that together. And um so yeah, I made a movie about neurology and that for no money, you've made an independent movie and lost money, and then I wrote this book, which was just like a labor of love and was so hard and emotionally draining, and then it was sort of like the election happened and it was like, uh I was probably about to do something like frivolous, like just as a break. And then it was like the election happened and it became very clear that we, that Hollywood is in an echo chamber and that we were all making shows for each other. And the red States were not watching, but you know, they're watching USA and they're watching sports and we're making shows for each other and putting on little talent shows in our living room for each other. And that we write characters that are sort of elitist and have elitist problems and that sound like us and that talk like us. And, a big conversation that was happening is these are people that did not feel seen or heard mm-hmm. and they made themselves be seen and heard by the way that they voted. And right. if they were just reflected more in culture and in the zeitgeist, maybe they would not have voted 
the way that they voted. Um, And they felt like this man came in and were speaking directly to them because we don't speak to them because we think they're stupid. Well, and I also think for me, if I may, I don't even, I would, and look, I'm not pr- pretending to speak for anyone else. I don't think anyone is stupid. I, I don't think, think you do. I think that the mistake that we've made is that at, when we talk about who needs help and, and relative privilege and all these things, we assume that people who may not be suffering as much as this other group of people, but mm-hmm. who are still suffering, yeah. know that when we talk about advocating for the people suffering the most, we're yeah. also going to advocate for them. Yep. But if we're not saying we're advocating for everybody, yeah. then people don't know. Yeah. And then all they hear is yeah. all you care about is those people over there and you don't care about us. And it creates this kind of war of odds. Yeah. And I had to look back and go like, oh, I need to make sure that whenever I'm talking about my experience as a woman yeah. with sexual harassment and assault at work, yeah. with sexism in the workplace, yeah. with whatever else it is I've gone through in my life, I have to make sure that in every single one of those conversations I have, I thank the great men who've been behind me mm-hmm. in my life. Yeah. Because I'm not having a war on men. No. I'm having a war on bad behavior and bad guys. Yeah. And by the way, bad women. There yeah. are some. Of course. That enable that behavior. You know what I mean? Like 100%. no one well, will have that conversation either. Yeah. Speaking well, of Roseanne. we have to be able to say some women are part of there's a lot of women that saw this shit happening and did nothing there's a lot of women that profited off this stuff there's a lot of women that knew you know and that's okay so I think it's very much the good women and the good men against the bad women and the bad men yeah and that's the duality that I think probably absolutely is the least and I mean it's interesting like even you know on my first show there were a group of us girls who were super tight from the beginning yeah and our creepy boss very specifically like worked to drive a wedge between all of us but we were 21 and he was 45 and we didn't know that that's what was happening and so he would say well this person said this about you and this person said that about you and these two think this about you and we believed it because like what me in a cage with that guy yeah like what what adult would behave that way right so then eventually we all were like ready to murder each other and we sat down and we were like we got to talk about this what the fuck and we all kind of realized what had happened and then we were like oh and we were like what a stupid decision because he won in the short term but in the long term like we now are united in a way that we would like go to war for each other and that will never change and so when I think about women who can be toxic I have to look at situations I've been in with other women yeah toxic yeah and I go, oh, because women have been encouraged by these systems sure. that men in power, again, yeah. not all men, yeah. men in power yeah. have created that have been designed to keep us out. Yeah. So we've always been told there's room for one of you. Yeah, it's the we've queen always, bee syndrome also. Yeah, it's one like of you will succeed. The scarcity complex mm-hmm. of like we all have to compete with each other. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm very relieved that at least I feel, I believe, I would like to believe, mm-hmm. maybe I idealistically believe, yeah. that we're leaving this era of competition among women yeah. and we're moving into an era of yeah. serious collaboration yeah. among women. This is also just bad science. It's like when yeah. we compete with each other, we make less money. The yeah. more, when everyone succeeds, everyone succeeds. Yeah. It's just sort of like a, we just have to like rewire our brains. Yeah, so like, when she wins, I win too. Yeah. Whereas it used to be if she wins, I lose. Yeah. And it's like, but that's not it's just, not, it's just bad business. And, and again, it's like the data says that companies who have more diversity more in gender profitable. and race are yeah. the most profitable. You make money. Just be, that's my but, thing. Yeah. Just be greedy. I don't care why you do it. It's actually greedy to hire people of color and women. Yeah. You do make it. more money. Great. Yeah. Do it. You know, but I think it's also important that, and I mean, I'm a big Roxanne Gay fan, but it's like, it's important that women are allowed to be assholes. 
Mm. They're allowed to be flawed. There's space for the real housewives. There should be space for, you know, it's like I was um, Ira Glass, I think it was on his show the other day, he was saying that, you know, the um, uh, who's the woman on Fresh Off the Boat who did something diva like and he was like, well, it's, you know, the first Asian woman like that's a diva, like they should be able to have a diva. Like they never got to have one, you know? And so I thought that was kind of interesting. And I don't know if I agree with it and I don't know enough about it, but it's like women should be able to be mm. assholes and mean and all that and not ha- it not be a whole thing, right. you know? Well, because when a guy who like runs a company or is the number one on a show has like an intense day, people are like, oh, he's intense. Yeah. But then when a woman does it, they're like, oh, she's a bitch. And it's like, but... But there's so much pressure for one to represent all yeah. and that's the big problem and, and that's it's so weird and it's like well who cares yeah it's like Me- that woman's a bitch i told you women are bitch. it's like or not or she's just a dick and that's okay for whatever yeah. reason be it nature be it nurture be it the zeitgeist be it conditioning be it social construction who cares don't even worry about it let's just move yeah. on with our day because yeah. if it was a guy you would just move on with your day right we wouldn't have to turn it into something well and if it was a guy it would be an observation of him in the moment mm-hmm. rather than a judgment of his character that's right that's right that's right and that that's i'm right. curious about too yeah it's like with women anything that is perceived to be negative becomes a never-ending character judgment yes. rather than a momentary interaction or something that's reinforcing some huge stereotype that is like keeps yeah. everyone down you know and yeah and i think that you know it is what it is and that is i just i think it's okay you know i was at this showrunner emmy showrunner panel thing and a very famous female showrunner you know uh was there and people were saying oh me too it's hard to be a woman and hollywood talk about it and she slammed her fist on the table and she said no one has been meaner to me in this business than women why isn't anyone talking about that Mm. and i just like slid down into my chair like i don't want to talk about this but until we can say that and give love i mean the women that came before us like they had to play by the rules of men and they had to adopt traditionally masculine traits and they had to become bullies in order to survive with other women yeah there is a generation of women that just has you know learned their way and they might still be doing that because they don't know any other way Mm -hmm. and i try to have love and compassion for internalized misogyny and me too try to look at my own sometimes and admit it you know and I think about like how proud I was in my 20s that like all the boys would be like, you're one of us. Yeah, you're like like, a guy's girl. I was like, yeah, it's fucking cool, man. totally. And I'm like, oh, wow, I I internalized that for sure. And look, and I also think it's important to be like, I am really because of my codependence recovery, I have to be what a lot of people would think is a bitch a lot. I have to say like, you know what? I have 20 minutes to talk about this. What's up? you know what? I got to go. This is, I'm at capacity for how much I can talk. Or like, you know what? I can't do that. Right. Like I'm yeah. sure a lot of people go like Whitney's kind of a bitch, but I have to have strong boundaries in order to keep the trains running on time and in order to have a modicum of mental health. And so I can get us all out of here at five o'clock. Like I kind of can't hear about your weekend. Hey, what's up? How I don't ask people out their weekends. Yeah. Unless it's like in the store, you know, yeah. like I unless just, it's a friend. Otherwise, you don't have to do that. at work. You walk in the writer's room and by the time you hear about everyone's weekend, it's one fifteen. Yeah. And then the nicest thing I can do is get you out of here at 3 30 so like i also just when we think women are difficult or toxic or bitches they might just kind of like be busy and be taking care of themselves and be trying to be busy responsibly totally or responsible busyness feels like a good goal to set totally you know so but i think it's a lot of people interpret strong boundaries as rejections or criticisms or bitch you know so it's like but i do think it's we have to be able to be able to make space for women that are fucking mean or competitive and what, yeah. whatever the reason 
that's okay. And it doesn't yeah. have to reinforce have your stereotype. Have grace for people. Totally. I really try to have grace for people. Unless you're like one of those fuckers marching in Charlottesville. Yeah. Like if you have internalized misogyny or you didn't know something yeah. or you didn't realize yeah. that you were upholding some yeah. kind of supremacy or patriarchy yeah. or whatever, we've all been there. Yeah. I have a lot of grace for you. I'm just like, do you want to come talk about it? Yeah. Should we grow together? Well, that's, you're so That'd special be cool. with that. Like, I don't know. I've had women be really nasty to me and it's taken me a while to go like, you know what? You thought I was taking something from you. Yeah. I And whether it was a mirage or whether it was true, which I don't think so, it was a time yeah. where it didn't seem like there was enough space for all of us. And it was <laughs> like there was one seat in the musical chairs and it just seems like I took it. Right. And that was a totally logical reaction mm -hmm. given what you saw. Because no one ever encouraged us to pull up more chairs. Never. That's all. And That's now we're it. changing. Totally get it. So you talk about being in the writer's room now. Yeah. That's on good people. Yeah, but that's you're... not, yeah. Do you want me to finish the Roseanne of it oh, all? Oh, yeah. I forgot. No, we please. Totally went if yeah. you want. I mean, yeah. look. I'll just real quick of for course. anyone who's still like, whatever happened with that? So basically. Yeah, we weren't smoothing over it. That was, yeah, I know. I didn't want you <laughs> we to think. Skipping. I didn't no. want you to think I was like. I didn't. Like, I was just like, ooh, the writer's room. Let's talk about They're that. Gonna be like, I, when like, he was changing the subject my, to My avoid attention it. span is like, definitely. I'm a little bit like a child who's like, look at squirrel. Like, I get excited. I don't. And it's also, yeah, people are going to be like, well, Whitney avoided it and she worked no, with the racist. we're not avoiding it, yeah. guys. Look, that was artful. We're talk about she, that was convenient how we segued. Um, I like that we're just trolling ourselves. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we're, we're not even I, good trolls. I, I These are not even good insults. I've learned I'm like really not good at it. It's okay. Um, but and in my brain, it's all misspelled and none of it's grammatically correct. But, um, but so I think we all kind of were like, okay, this opportunity is happening and these are this show is going to be in the right. First of all, it's a show that gives visibility to people that are low income, a class that is not on television a lot and then is not usually portrayed accurately. It's usually a bunch of elitist, rich writers writing for pretend fake poor people that are like wearing a scada in every scene for some reason and right. have a house in Brentwood but they're like have money problems and I think that Roseanne was a show that one of the big themes was just because we're poor doesn't mean we're stupid and I think there was a lot of deplorables and they're idiots and they're stupid and you know I mean if you're getting fake news what that why wouldn't you believe the news is real I mean that's the other really just sad thing that was going on I had not read uh, Roseanne's tweets the prior ones I didn't even I did not follow her which was a weird thing on my part, I guess. And we had had a long conversation and she actually was a Bernie supporter. And then she was a blow it up person, which I'm not a fan of that mentality. But it was kind of like, okay, like we can at least be in a room together because that's what wasn't happening is people. I mean, my family yeah. hasn't spoken since. I know so many people who some family voted for Trump and they just did not. I mean, families are being torn apart and wow. we really wanted to tell the story about families being torn apart. And can you be in the same room if you voted differently at the time? A lot of people could not. Yeah. And so that was a really interesting it's story. It's conversation to try to have. It's really important conversation. And we were like, people are going to watch this. It's going to get in the red states. A lot of our shows don't get into the red states. And Michelle Obama had just said, what you put on TV moves the needle. So we were just like, all right, you know, Wanda Sykes and Norm MacDonald and Morgan Murphy and all these people that, you know, whose minds I really respect, you know, wanted to get on board. And we were like, look, we get to get our kind of ideas into the red states. Like that's the people that actually need to hear it. We're not going to just be preaching to the choir. And we had well, a And also to do that, 
I would imagine the goal was to like do that respectfully to yeah. hear people, to accurately represent people. That's the idea. Uh, and know. then we had a gender nonconforming grandson on the show and it yeah. was like, oh my God, this is going to get into the red states and like have this conversation about tolerance and we're going to talk about immigration and undocumented labor. And, you know, Dan was getting his jobs taken. And, you know, I just did air quotes. And, you know, I think it'd be a really interesting conversation about healthcare and they didn't have health insurance in the opioid mm-hmm. crisis and she had an opioid addiction. And that's a huge conversation that yes. a lot of people it's just can't have right now, but it's- but We need to. People don't have insurance <laughs> and they're yeah. stealing their kids' medication, uh, Oxycontin from their cavity. Like it's what's going on is so nuts and we really wanted to be able to express that and we worked really hard to do that. So those were the motives behind it, although it did not end as planned. It was something that I think we really, you know, wanted to be healing and ended up making a whole new wound. But I think interestingly, because we look back and we're like, okay, our motive was to kind of show that something's, this is not okay. Intolerance is not okay. Racism is not okay, right? And although not in the package we thought it would come in, in a way, Channing Dungy, who ran ABC, mm-hmm. saying no to this very lucrative thing that mm-hmm. happened, was the message. Was in a way, and it ended up yeah. being the biggest news story, I think, in a really long, you know, so it sort of yeah. ended up kind of maybe being the ending it needed to be. Right. To have someone say, we're not going to prioritize financial gain over publicly saying public we do not speech. condone not this. Doing that we do not condone this no matter how much money we make from it. Maybe that's what needed to be heard and seen more than the show. I don't, I don't know. Maybe that's what I just tell myself to justify that year I lost. (laughs) No, I mean, but I hear that. And look at the end of the day, when you, when you have an experience and it doesn't work out in the Mm -hmm. idealized way that you thought it would, you want to, figure out what the purpose was. Yeah, yeah, totally. And But I, I totally also, I really that. did, I wanted to learn how to make a good multicam because that's hard to do. And Roseanne is one of the very few truly great ones, just quality wise. And I wanted to understand. I mean, to me, I really wanted to understand what happened in the country. I didn't want to throw judgment. I didn't want to make assumptions. I really wanted to understand. And, you know, to me, like I travel all around this country, I meet people and it made me learn, you know, like I get why people need guns. I get it. I don't think mm-hmm. everyone should have one. Mm-hmm. I have, you know, very complicated feelings about it. But when you go to people's homes and, you know, rural areas and a lot of these people are scared of police. A lot of people have guns because they're scared of police. Right. And if they call the police, you know what I mean? And yeah. you're asking a lot of people. And I think this is something we forget. When you're saying to people, we're taking your gun, a lot of them say, is, you're not going to let me protect my family. They don't have yeah. the alarm systems we have. They don't, you know, so mm-hmm. for me, I was naive around that. And I just, I mm-hmm. wanted to immerse myself in it so that I could actually learn about it so that I can actually know what I'm talking about and yeah. not just be full of rage and self-righteous indignation all the time. Totally. And I think it's really important, you know, I hadn't really considered it, but I was talking to my friend Olivia and she said to me, she was like, it's so important when you talk about advocacy around gun control because you're like the only gun owner I know. Yeah. And I was like, oh. Hmm. really wow Wow. and I hadn't thought about that but like I grew up in LA yeah then I spent two and a half years in a 5,000 person town in central California yeah my dad grew up in Canada and spent every summer on a farm like literally two doors down from a like chicken slaughterhouse yeah so when I was 12 my dad gave me my first 22 rifle wow that's like a joyous thing for us we go to the outdoor shooting range together it's like it's a hobby 
You know, it's like Dude, that's so important. Yeah. And I love it. Like, by the way, three days before Parkland happened, I was on a range day with all my buddies, two of whom are Green Berets. Like, we were shooting tactical weapons. Like, I was toting around an AR-15 all day. That's great. But I don't... I mean, mean, it's great that you speak for what you speak for and also understand. uh, But I think because I I have done so much work with police and military also, like... I don't need to own that gun. Yeah. I, no civilian needs to own that gun. I don't know a single person in the yeah. police force, the SWAT, yeah. who I've trained with or the military I've worked with who yeah. thinks that any normal human being should own that gun. Yeah. And also, like, that's where I think the rationale comes in. It's like, I own a gun because I have received credible death threats. I know. The LAPD told me to get a gun and I just, like, haven't you know, done it. <laughs> right. And, like, at the end of the day, I hope I never have to use it. Yeah. But just in case I do... I've taken tests. I went through the concealed carry permit course. I've been certified by the sheriff. Like, God forbid I ever had to use it. I want the police to know I am like the most qualified. I didn't have to do any of that. So I'm like, if you're not a crazy person, you should be willing to do all the shit. Yeah. Just all of it. You should be willing to do a background check. You should be willing to wait. You should be willing to take a test. You should be like, I mean, it shouldn't be easier to own a gun than to drive a car. It's like, it's crazy to me. Yeah. So I think that figuring out ways to put people in these conversations and to realize they don't have to be enemies feels really important. Yeah. And and I, I guess like that's a tangential way of just saying, I really respect the goal that you set for that experience to say, how do we get a bunch of people to talk about things differently, to realize they're more alike than they are different? Yeah. To me, that's the idea is if we sit in a room for 20 minutes, we're going to find things. It's like, you know, it's not to get into super volatile subjects. It's like pro-life people, like we both agree babies shouldn't die. Yeah. We both agree no one should kill babies. We just disagree on the definition yeah. of what that is. Like, yeah. like you know what I mean? It's like as soon as you start yeah. talk, I mean, there's certain people that you, maybe you can't even start to engage with, right. but it really, I really want to practice the muscle of, because we. I just feel like with social media now and how, again, we only follow the people we want to follow. We only listen to the things we want to listen to. There's like this self-righteous narcissism of everyone mm-hmm. should have the same values that I have all the time even though they have completely different circumstances yeah. and neurology and, and like childhood that. circumstances. It's just like a crazy thing to expect everybody to have my values. And that's part of the reason I think that I take issue with some of the laws that the other side is trying to push forward is I'm like, you expect everyone to have your values. That's right. You expect everyone to believe what you believe. You think we should make medical decisions for women yeah. and marital decisions for humans based yeah. on your personal beliefs not even based on science not yeah. even based on public health research like we gotta get a little saner but here we, and, and, this, and i'll hear you i'm willing to hear you but it's also such a big to me like i'm always like you know it's like any problem in a company or in a story if you're writing a script like the problem yeah. is always at the top the problem is always in the root you know so for me yeah. it's like the biggest problem right now it's like that i feel like nobody's talking about is the fact i mean people are talking about it but not in a way that's like meaningful in terms of like people are getting information that's not true. So it's like, if you heard something untrue about me and were mad at me about it, like, I don't blame you because like, how would you know? Of course you would make that judgment based on misinformation. So it's like, like, I mean, everyone's just like, Facebook is just our new addiction and like the oxygen we breathe. And it's just like for things to be able to put out that just aren't true, like not to talk too much about Roseanne, but it's like a lot of the things that the people that we're in a fight with, they truly think Are are true. Right. 
So how can I be mad at you for just not knowing that? Well, <laughs> by the way, I had this experience recently and like I'm a very pro-choice person. I'm like, listen, I don't even need people to know what my choice personally for me would be. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to say I have no right to make a choice for you. Yeah. Nobody it's none of my business. Like it's none of my fucking business. Mm-hmm. N- nobody's. It's, yeah. it's up to a woman and her doctor. Yeah. Period. End of story. Goodbye. Yeah. We're talking about healthcare. That's just what I think. And I think I'm pretty well informed on the subject mm-hmm. and was just told on a call similar to the one you were talking about. It was like an all hands on deck. Yeah. What are we going to do? Like NARAL, Planned Parenthood. How do we advocate? Yeah. But I was just told by a fucking doctor on one of those calls that like the heartbeat bill is total bullshit because there's there is no heartbeat. That a zygote doesn't have a heartbeat yeah. at six weeks. That what you're hearing yeah. is actually the pulse. It's the electrical impulse of the mom's heartbeat. Yeah. And I was like, wait, what? And I didn't know that. I didn't know that we're literally attacking a mother for her own heartbeat. I was, I was like, how did I not know that? I'm an adult. Like, like, wait. And I realized that there's so much information that I don't have either. And And so I can't blame other people. Seeking it out. So imagine how little somebody. I can't blame other people for not having it. Works three jobs and they're just trying to get Uh food on the table and they're just like, I want to watch Big Bang Theory and go to bed. And then I think about us and I think about how many scenes we've seen in shows and movies where the couple goes and they're like, "There's your baby's heartbeat," and it's like. There's no doctor saying, well, that's the electrical impulse of your heartbeat beginning to travel to your uterus. And in another X number of weeks, the fetus will eventually develop organs and it will have a heartbeat of its own. Like, I, I've, been, I've never seen that scene. So that's when I go, hey, artists, yeah. put that scene in, in Game of Thrones. Yeah. Obviously, not, <laughs> probably for, not the right show, but what is the biggest show on the, TV? For the season 10 of Game of Thrones where the dragons are having sonograms. Well, yeah, totally. Put, <laughs> yeah. I mean, honestly, it Whatever. seems like people weren't that happy with the ending, so why not put in something yeah. equally as polarizing? But it's like, you know, that's when it's like, okay, yeah. this is where artists really get to broadcast mm-hmm. something and make it mainstream. You yeah. know, I... Yeah. You have done a new comedy special and you are working on good people. Yeah. And you're doing that with Lee Daniels. I know. Just like, oh my God, I think he's so cool. We sat next Great. to each other at this dinner thing in New York yeah. and I literally was so excited uh, that I couldn't talk to him like a normal person. So I just didn't, I, I, I said like two or three oddly timed things. And I was like, <laughs> I just shook my head and was like, nope, I'm just going to stop. Oh no! I'm just I know he stop. definitely. It's interesting to watch people's reactions to him because they either kind of shut down or they talk like they start to kind of. Yeah, you're just like you're like just yeah, just just. Talk. And when you know it with people who you know, where you're like, what's happening yeah. to you? Like yeah. what? When what? I first met that Ellen, happens to me. I got so nervous that I started talking in a southern accent, like no. for no reason. I you just were like, got, "Hey, girl, what's I was up? like, "Hey, so it's so, you're such a hero of mine." Like I've never speak. Like it was so weird, no. and I was just like, "I'm so sorry, I cannot stop this." Like I was just like panicked. <laughs> Your brain fully. It just like the wires crossed, yeah. and I had like an out of body experience, and I was like looking down at myself, being like, "You're bombing, stop!" Yeah. Like, yeah, I had that with Kate McKinnon. Oh, I just am such a fan of her. But she's also very doesn't need to like impress you because she already has for you. Like she I I blathered and like puked all over. her. It was bad. I had the out of body experience looking down on myself, not speaking in a southern accent, 
but speaking like someone had dosed me with speed. And I was just like, oh my God, I think you're so amazing. And like, this thing was so funny. And that's right. and it just kept going. And she stood there and like, eventually her she eyes just, just started you. to get a little wider. And I was like, this is bad. This is really bad. This is, I, this is going really badly. I sometimes go the other way because especially with people like Kate McKinnon, where I'm like, I know you get these compliments all day. So I'm going to go the other direction and just not talk about your work because you, mm. it must be boring having to go like, thank you. Thank you. Like all thank day. You, all the time. So I'll just be like, so what's up? And then I just come off like super rude, like I don't know who they are, but right. I'm really just trying to like not be a fan. It's, and then I'm just like, Fuck. this is my problem with people who I admire so much, who I don't have a rapport with. Like yeah. we have a rapport. We like DM about crazy things and yeah. animals. And so like I feel I felt at ease when you got here today with people who I love so much who I don't know how to be at ease with, yeah. I short circuit all me the too. time. Me and too. Jenny, my best friend who I was talking about, literally at things has like grabbed me by the forearm and been like, you cannot behave this way. You are also a famous person. Don't and I'm <laughs> like, so true. And I'm like, but I'm not like, she, she's the, yeah. uh, and I'm having this like deep, just so disaster panic. It's so endearing. Well, here's my thing. I go oh. like, Okay, you're an actress. Act like you've got it together. <laughs> like if you were in a scene oh where someone had to pull it together, just do that scene that's right now. Brilliant, like actually. that's what I try to do. Just like write the scene in your head that you'd want to be in right now with this famous person that you admire that's and figure out a really way to pull your shit together. Smart. But I ignore, I mean, a lot of people like you will just, I just avoid people that I admire and they'll be like, hi. And I'm like, sorry, I just, I can't. I can't talk just to Just get you. away from me. Yeah. But yeah, Lee is the greatest and he is, um, he is so fearless and he is so, you know, it's, it's interesting because, you know, this moment where there's lots of really flammable topics and I think a lot of people feel very shut down and feel like they can't ask questions because mm. they don't want to be wrong and a lot of incredible incredible progress is happening but we kind of wanted to explore you know just there's a lot of opinions that aren't being heard and I think you know we get obsessed with sort of voices that aren't being heard mm. and and allowing people to be wrong because how else are you going to know and I think you know ignorance hides in the shadows and a lot of times in my own stuff like you know one of my best friends is transgender and I like I get things wrong all the time and I just am like I'm just learning just like ask because there's if there's a new thing that I don't know how else am I going to find out I'm not I'm you know I'm on all the emails and the glad and that but there's sometimes there's words that you're not going to find out what the right word is to say if you don't ask or make a mistake you know so we're kind of just like trying to make space for people that aren't caught up and that mm. might not know and that are still trying to understand so what is the show about Can the show is us? about so I go all over um, the country and perform at colleges and I found that every time I went to a college I were like you can't talk about this and you can't say this and these people are protesting and there's this problem and I'd always be like what's the drama on campus you know yeah. and you know one of the big ones was there was a transgender boy that wanted to play football and they wouldn't let him because it was too dangerous. And then also the hormones and that's technically doping and da 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 da. And I just was like, whoa. whoa. And there's an office called the ombudsman's office and their job is to mm -hmm. deal with stuff like that. And because my brain, I was just like, who is the poor bastard who has to deal with this freaking conundrum, you know? And there's a white girl with dreadlocks and people are upset about it. And the mascot is racist. It's a Native American caricature and people are upset. Like who has to deal with that? You know? And I just, 
that was so fascinating yeah, to me. Yeah, what's the filter for those problems? Yes, and the person that just has to go, yeah, we have a racist mascot. Like, what are we going to do about it? Like, I was just so in this moment of change. Do we take mm. down the Robert E. Lee statue? Do we take down the Thomas Jefferson statue? Do we still teach Roman Polanski in film school? Do we still teach Degas and Picasso and Charles Bukowski? And do we take the N-word out of Huck Finn? Like, I can argue both sides in a lot. Roman Polanski, I can't really. But uh, that, that, that feels like we just were, I think we should just call it on him. But, you know, I think that there's a lot of really interesting conversations to be had and a lot of questions to be asked that when I don't know the answer to something, that's usually when I want to make a show about it or write something about it because it's something that is, you know, a fair fight. I'm obsessed with a fair fight and with a conundrum that doesn't have a clean answer. You know, with football, it's like, should the trans kid play football? I'm like, I don't think anyone should play football. <laughs> so there's this documentary that you have to see that I got to see at Mountain Foam called Changing the Game. Okay. And it is about, well, it starts off being about three and then a fourth athlete comes in, but three trans- transgender athletes in three different states. Oh, cool. Going through high school sports and the state-to-state differences and the policies that affect these kids and the oh, teams wow. they can and cannot play on and yep. whether or not they can be recognized and the advocacy that they're all working on. And like, it is so special. Love it. Yeah, I'm going to make sure. Because it's also, there's like, and these people are actually heroes because there's a lot of parents, a lot of these ombudsmen, a lot of parents will not provide the medications that the trans kids need. So the colleges actually provide it. But it's like, and then with these sports organizations, I don't even know what they're called. Mm -hmm. They consider testosterone doping, but that's what a trans person would, you know, so it's so complicated. And then would it be that way if it was a trans female and she was on estrogen, would she be doping? Like what they But cheerleading and, 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 you know, and uh, women's, that no one gives a shit about, so they don't have any money. Right. And then I got sort of fascinated by, and these are all really uncomfortable conversations to have, and I'm sure you guys are going to, yell at me on on but it's like cheerleading like is it good is it bad but as soon as it's not a traditional size zero it's progress right you know and so it's like a lot of people are like we want cheerleading to go but as soon as there's a body there's a lizzo on the team we're like wait this is awesome and this is showing you know women that we can have different bodies and it's showing young people that not everyone has to look a certain way you know so it's, it's very complicated. It's very complicated. Being a human is complicated. It's a nightmare. Shit. But there is someone whose job is to answer, you know, there's kids. Yeah. So the show's about that office. The show's about and that. And it's about three it. generations of women that all have different kind of experiences and different takes. Because, wow. you know, and I don't want to rile anybody up, but when the Aziz story happened, I had some girlfriends who were like, what's the, what's the problem? That's every date I've ever been on. And then I had some girlfriends that were like, that's wrong and that's an abuse of power. And then I had some women that were like, what? What the fuck? Like, it was just seeing those different reactions, mm-hmm. not putting any judgments on any of them, but the different strata of reactions, I think all are interesting in one place. So it's three yeah. generations of women. Um, Lisa Kudrow plays the ombudsman, you know, who has to kind of ultimately, I know, I know. Where are you shooting this show? It's here. Can I just like come hang out? A day or you seven and watch her it. be brilliant. And it's... Um, and you, obviously. Oh, but. that's so... Ca- she's just beyond comprehension. Um, but it's really tricky subject matter and really fine lines and exploring all these things. Then we might not have the answer, but I think after people watch it, they'll argue and they'll agree with some people and won't agree with other people. Wow. And maybe that's okay. That's so great. Yeah. So we'll see. Again, I like opening a space for a dialogue. I'm not good at like putting my stuff on social media and then being in fights with you know i think for me i like to sublimate it into characters or fiction or stand up because i'm not i'm not good i get too emotional and 
I can't like follow up on social media in a way that's responsible enough. So I don't like. No, I get that. It's too I try to hide. That's one of the things I will say is like really nice about stories is like you can post entire stories about issues and news and things, but like nobody can comment on them. And it's a little bit of a way to protect yourself more, you know? And I also just, I'm, I also, I'm also learning, you know, I'm also so imperfect about this stuff that like one day you kind of believe one thing and then you hear this. To me, it's also Mm-hmm. I don't know about and uh, yeah. so I don't want to just like put something out there with uh, in a very strident way and then the next day I go like oh well actually in this circumstance it's that's okay you can right. have a gun if it's that thing you right. know like you know what I mean you know, like it's I complex just, for sure I'm really trying to get better at um having strong opinions and understanding what I'm talking about before I say it so yeah. I like to kind of um my brain is so messy around a lot of this stuff that I try to put them in characters so that it can be messy the way it is kind of in life and so the show you're doing obviously all these characters but then you have a new Netflix special yeah. as well and that's you that's me those and, are my opinions <laughs> and, and it's called can I touch it yes so my first real question about the special is like what do you want to touch <laughs> What's going on? To me, it meant so many things. I talk a lot about Me Too and sexual harassment. I talk a lot about uh, subjects we're not allowed to talk about. I think a big conversation in comedy right now is like, can I touch that? Can I say that? Can I talk about that? Is that funny? Can we joke about that? Right. You know, and then also, as you know, I have a robot in the show that is a robot of me that I did as kind of a weird social experiment. And... I found something really interesting where I have this robot and whenever I bring her anywhere, guys will be like, can I touch it? Can I touch her? And I was like, it's amazing how easy consent is for you and this robot. Like it was, can I touch it? I was like, just do that. With, with women. women. Like I And with and can I caveat you know how that to do it. with pregnant women. The number of my girlfriends who are like people touch my yes. belly, they don't You're, even ask. You turn into public property. It's like so gross. Yes. Like maybe just say, Can I touch that? You're a handmaid. You, yes. Interesting that there's more you onus know around how to do with it. a robot. You know how to do it. So just treat us like we're a bunch of microchips. And if it's property, you're like, oh <laughs> just treat me like I'm a piece of property I guess maybe more so you're like never thought I would say that ever literally it's so wild just treat me like an inanimate object (laughs) treat me with the amount of respect you would treat like a like an emotionless machine and we'll be fine the new version of like draw me like one of your French girls yeah what (laughs) you know what is okay (laughs) there's no the reason I'm stuttering because people at home obviously can't see see what is going on in this fucking room the robot is here but She's only here. only her head her on head. a stand is yeah. here. She also has a body. Yes, she does. And this robot who literally, you guys, it's like it's like I'm looking at Whitney and then he's like this head is here. There's two of them in the room. Yeah. But the robot not only the the irony of all these men, especially saying, like, can I touch it? Yeah. Is because this robot comes from a factory that makes Sex robots. Yeah, they make sex robots, but they make therapy robots. They make Got all it. sorts all of... All kinds of lifelike make, robots. Yes. Okay. They make all sorts... I mean, look, sex drives everything. It's what the internet, mm-hmm. porn made the internet. They, you know, uh, innovated add to cart and payment methods. It's like sex is yeah. always going to be the thing that motivates I love that commerce. you said... I saw the preview for your comedy special, and I just have okay. to say, because you referenced porn, that you're like, I've learned so much looking at like porn search history and apparently in a sex robot factory... Like, 
about what men search for and you're yeah. like weird there's like no ceo porn searches it's like school and girl i just loved it like, i was like oh god yeah no one's like mogul um interesting interesting but I, you know i was talking so much about robots a lot about sex robots i talked you know and i think that might have been my last special i think but i talked my last two specials i ended up talking a lot about porn porn yeah. is something that just fascinates me i'm not like an anti i mean I, it's just it is the results oh. are in oh, and yeah, i just realized i used the word preview i should have said clip maybe i don't yeah, yeah whatever but i just went to this Symposium with Gail Dines, who I'm sure you would love, and she talks all about what porn is doing to our brains and our kids, and how women view themselves and all of it. And it's it also really like, is the next big health crisis. A hundred percent. Yeah. Also, just want to like drop on the table. We can think about it for three days. Anytime, <laughs> anytime you need someone to like go to weird symposiums with you, I'm your person. Like I I'm wish I had. In. I just we hadn't really hung out. I'm really. Like, hey, I know. You I know. Go to this symposium on porn. But, but now, just if you're ever like, I don't really want to go to that thing alone, I'll go. I because I go you. to all those things alone, and I'm me in. too. You know? I, hashtag yeah, I do all of the me. Yeah. And so I, it was pretty hashtag wild. Symposium. She's got a TED talk. It's really if you're a fan of Sophia and everything she does, it's you will probably really enjoy her. I mean, it's pretty wild. It's pretty. It's getting to the point, and I'm sorry, maybe a lot of you tuned in because you thought I was a comedian, and now this is getting really bleak, but it's getting to literally to the point to where porn addicts are going after very young girls that aren't pedophiles. Like, pedophiles start, I mean, she was explaining 10 to 14, and she goes into these prisons, and she, you know, interviews rapists, and they're like, I just was so desensitized by porn, the only place there was any risk or high was to move on to younger. I mean, it's like, it's so beyond comprehension how bad it is for our brains, and it really is, hopefully there will be a day where it'll be like what cigarettes used to be. Like, we now go, remember when you used to be able to like smoke inside? Like everywhere. Smoke while you were pregnant? maybe there will be a day in our lifetime where it's like remember when people could just watch porn whenever they wanted like that was crazy like that is sort of how bad it is for our brains wow um but so I got pretty obsessed with porn my last couple specials I talk a lot about it and because I was out in the streets in these LA streets dating and it was there was there I was getting it was a war zone out there there the choking Mm -hmm. and the spitting and I was like what is all what's happening yeah I was saying to somebody we had a like cool little group of people for dinner a couple months ago my friends and I and one of the guys was we were just having like a very frank conversation about all this stuff and he was like do you girls like really think porn is a problem and I was like uh hello and I just said like I'm not gonna call anybody out and there's plenty of people I've heard this from who aren't at this table but the number of women who I feel like it's just become like a broken record of girls who like actually when you finally rarely get excited about someone you're going to date and like you decide to become intimate with that person, the number of women who've been like, yeah, it was going great and everything was cool and like he's super smart and whatever. And we finally had sex and it's like, he fucks me like we're in a porn. Yeah. People who are just like, it's like desensitized. It's creepy. It made me feel bad about myself. It's also the people it harms the most are men. Yes. Frankly. And that's yes. and 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 we do have a little bit of a problem in our culture where it's we always frame how something is bad for women, which yeah. is f- fair in a lot of ways because there's just so much bad shit for women, but I think as soon as we position it as being bad for men, that's when they'll start to listen. Yeah. Erectile dysfunction is now at 33% for people. It was at 4%, I want to say 20 years ago. Because check me on that. Please fact check fact check me on that. Okay. Gail Dines will explain it to you. It is like so bad for men. And it also is, it's not, 
porn is a huge spectrum of it's millions and millions of things it's like anything is drinking bad for you if you have one glass of wine a week no No. if you have seven glasses of moonshine a day day. (laughs) yes you know so it's like if you're so much of this porn is so sexually violent that that's where stuff gets tricky and when an 11 year old googles boobs because they just want to see boobs because they're 11 and fisting ass to mouth comes up i don't even know what that means but that's a big search that's not what this 11-year-old is signing up for. And that's what they then learn sex is at 11. And their undeveloped brains yeah. are making those kinds of wrong connect the dots th- connections we were talking about earlier. And it's like, it has disastrous consequences. We're not talking about you, 45-year-old guy who's kind of just watching Jenna Jameson masturbate or whatever you watch. I'm making things up. We're talking about the 11-year-old that goes to Google and just wants to see like a naked lady. Yeah, and winds up and down. sees some sexually violent yeah, horrific in thing. Like in a, essentially in like torture porn. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Guys, we took a pee break and like we came back in and all of us are like, there she is because the robot the head robot is just on the will have to have posted Does she this. have a name? She has a name. Her name's Bearclaw. Bearclaw. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's about... Um, <laughs> It's about, it's a reference to a joke that it's going to bomb in a podcast context, but it's about how the nicknames, I do a bit in the new special about nicknames, like that women give each, that women get versus what men get. Like men are like boss, champ, chief, like they get promotions in their nicknames and the nicknames we get like honey, sweetie, like like, I, there's something about, like, we need to stop calling women desserts unless you want to pick a cool dessert, like Bear Claw. Like, I you can like call that. me that, so then I call her Bear Claw. Bear Claw. Yeah. I'm into it. Yeah, so that's her. But she's a good... I mean, I know it's so interesting to look at people's reactions because people get really creeped out, and there's a biological basis for being creeped out by robots, and it's called pathogen avoidance. It's okay. really interesting. What does it mean? It's our brain's way of basically making it so we don't fuck dead things. Or sick things. So our answer that was not what I was expecting you to say. I didn't say it very elegantly or like a scientist. So people who are necrophiliacs actually have broken brains. That's right. That's Great. right. Or, I mean, I figured, right. but basically, cool. so it's our anything that we're repelled by yeah. is something that used to be poisonous, right? Like berries, things that taste bad or poison. Yeah. You know, like so it's the way that we've evolved to avoid things that can kill us. So we have evolved the disgust response to anything that looks human but doesn't move like a human it's our brain trying to figure out Being if it's like, alive avoid, avoid, avoid. that's right and be, don't be attracted to it so like yeah. men are way more freaked out by this than women are they're like oh that thing's fucking crazy and they get like really Whoa. freaked out and it's their brain's way of saying like don't fuck that sick thing because you're gonna get whatever it has and die wow pathogen avoidance yeah so how in this research you know from gail and everything else you've been studying about porn and and relationships I don't know (laughs) Um, how how do sex robots come into it like how do people then get into relationships with these things I mean look I don't uh, like in the special I talk a lot about sex robots and everything that I've learned you know I think the majority of people now and I'm not an expert on it are not like people we know that are I don't think people like should I date Sophia or like get a sex robot these are people that are older that are you know I, I went on the um message boards because I was like am I sort of defending and completely indefensible like psychopaths like what is this are these people that like hate women that like no 
there are some men that are like, I can't afford a real girlfriend or I just, you know, went through a divorce and I'm not ready to move on, but I have needs. I mean, I still think it's it's odd at yeah. this point. I mean, there might be a time where we look back and it'll be odd to not have one. I We thought it was odd 15 years ago to go on an app and tell people what we were eating. That was, sure. you know, it's amazing the things that we think are weird and well, that are yeah, super like normal. Our whole lives we got raised to not get into cars with strangers and now we call them to our house and get in their cars. <laughs> they know where we live. Yeah. They know where we live. Yeah, it 100%. is so bad shit. Crazy the things that we're able to get accustomed to. And so, um, you know, so who knows? But it's also a lot of guys that have erectile dysfunction or are there's something really amazing actually, per our conversation earlier, about mm. this toxic masculinity conversation and every guy is just this like, you know, and going on these message boards, it's like a lot of really vulnerable guys expressing their insecurities mm. and being like, I don't really feel like I'm attractive enough for a woman to like me and I keep getting rejected. And, oh. you know, th- that gets tricky because there's that sect of people that get angry about being rejected by women. Well, that's frightening. But right. this is the, what you're talking about observing that, that tugs on your heartstrings is not. I don't, the if they're concentric, tribe, yeah. I don't know a lot about it. And yeah. those are not the kind of people on this sample size of the chat room that I was going on and seeing these men. It was actually really kind of heartening. And and maybe I should have had this before. And it was weird that I didn't. But it just, I just watching men speak in, I mean, I was spying, uh, but watching men speak in private about their insecurities and vulnerabilities about their bodies, about like, I'm just not in good enough shape to get a girl I want. Mm. I'm pining for this one girl and she doesn't love me back. A lot of guys get them to practice because they don't think they're good enough at sex. A lot of them, mm. like I said, had erectile dysfunction or some kind of injuries, or they're like, I can't afford a girlfriend. They're yeah. too expensive. Yeah. You know? I do want to clarify one thing just because I am sensitive to the things that trigger people to be hateful to women on social media. And I love your humor, but like you weren't spying on men to spy on men. You were like doing research for your special. Yeah, okay. You, oh, thank you, you. Yeah. And you were given you were given access to this space yes. and all of these people are anonymous. It's not like, you know, yeah. you, you Well, I'm a member. Right. I have one. You have one. So you have access, <laughs> yeah. but I'm just saying like yes. I don't I don't suddenly want some person oh, who might be listening you. who's been in that space to think that like you were recording people's information. Oh, like, yes. No, you were yeah. you you gained membership to an anonymous platform yeah. because you own one of these dolls yes. and you also have been doing research on this idea with other research like you know that's right thank you for doing that because i I just want to clarify i was like self-deprecating yeah that wasn't like a flippant thing you were doing you've like really gotten serious about how to analyze and also to the point of our earlier conversation i think how we include men's vulnerability in in the conversation about culture because we do really need to be intentional but i realized like i would not have had an understanding of men's vulnerability had I not entered into yeah. that, you know, kind of space. Yeah. And, you know, and for me, I think that if I hadn't have done, I, I mean, I'm just all about just doing your research and know what the fuck you're talking about. And if you don't know what you're talking about, just don't talk and let the people that know what they're saying yeah. speak, you know, like I think that especially in this time where everyone's got a microphone and everybody can sort of put out whatever they want, whenever they want. It's just like, know, you know, when to open your mouth and just know what you're talking about, you know, before you speak. So I really wanted to do that instead of just going, these are perverts. And because that's just such an easy thing to do and it's sloppy and I think yeah. a really irresponsible argument to make right now um, especially as we talk about toxic masculinity engaged and all that so I really wanted to know what was actually going on how it was working it was also interesting because I think men you know it's nature it's nurture it's bio, it's so many things but don't men don't get to kind of become for lack of a better word like fast friends the way women can mm. and they bond and just watching these men 
bond over this common thing. It becomes a car club after a while. It's yeah. like, oh, what glue gun are you using? And what hairbrush do you use? And is this nail polish remover? Where? Like, I mean, it's just watching these guys just, just figure out how to... And I talk about my special, but this mm. is this is really ridiculous. And I know this isn't the answer to anything. But, you know, after watching these men, you know, connect about their dolls, bond about their dolls, ask for advice. But people are like, well, aren't you worried that these men are, you know, going to start to treat human women the way they treat their dolls? Like they treat their dolls great. And I yeah. actually kind of argue these are the only men that know like how hard it is to be a woman because they're they're buying, you know, nail polish and they're putting the clothes on and the bra and they're like, can you believe mascara is $18? Like, this is crazy. Yeah. Like, they're learning about the pink tax yeah. when they're buying shit for their dolls. Wow, like that's fascinating. It's fascinating. They're like, wait a second. Like, because women's hairbrushes are more expensive than men's hairbrushes. That's just a fact. Like, yeah. you can, you and know. women's razors. Everything. And everything. And they're like, wait a second. Like, why are socks $12 for a woman? My socks are $2. Like, yeah. it's they're actually in there having conversations that yeah. I don't think would be having. It's almost like when you give in, was it like middle school when you're given like an egg for the day and you have yes. to carry it around? It's kind of like that, you know? And like the high heel shoes, they're, they're trying to figure out high heel. I mean, look, it's so insane that I'm talking about this like it's not insane but like when they buy shoes for the doll they're like who the fuck can walk in these these are crazy yeah. you know and they put it but on I her. love that your experience in a space because by the way you showed up and you were like I got a sex doll and I was like what <laughs> and I'm a pretty progressive person who's like you do whatever you want to do but yeah yeah I had thoughts and assumptions yeah about what that would mean and yeah. then you're explaining all of this to me and I see the humanity I see the learning I yeah. see the empathy I see the curiosity like yeah. that's kind of amazing and you and said two things that I don't want to forget because I had obviously guys I had a lot of questions about what the fuck was going on with this <laughs> before we got to recording and you told me these two of the things that people ask for the most yeah from the company that produces these dolls yep. is for them to be older older and bigger heavier, bigger and bodies 60 percent of them request pubic hair yeah. Which, by the way, I just... Which is great. I never... No joke. I, like, stopped managing that when I heard that. I was like, oh, God. I thought pubic hair was over forever, and I had to electrocute... <laughs> I'm freezing. I had to electrocute myself every month. I literally was like, oh, I thought no man wanted... Like, I thought that was disgusting and revolting. Men are, like, requesting it and paying extra for it. A lot. Like, over $1,000 It's $1,400 extra. So it's, like, it's yeah. an interesting kind of insight... You know, and just to get off Instagram and off this virtual world of perfection and impossible standards into like, what do people kind of actually want? And I'm sure there are psychopaths who have these. I'm sure there, yeah, are, psychopaths there are psychopaths who in are our lives that dating. are probably married to our friends. Yeah. That we don't see, you know, 100%. what people do in the shadows, we will never know. Mm -hmm. To me, I always, when someone puts their crazy right out in front, that's when I start to feel safe, you know? Like, yeah. I'm like, all right, you're a weird, you know? So, it's I just I don't think that we can be reductionistic about like all these people are weirdos because before sex robots, there were a lot of weirdos. Right. A lot, you know, yeah. so there've to, always been weirdos because we like to just go, it's that thing. And this is the problem. And we just want to jump and blame at something instead of look at because I think we don't want to look at the inherent problems that are in us. Yeah. So we want to point to anything. We want like an easy thing to blame. Yeah. Anything that can be othered. Yeah. And, and for us, that might be as women who are thinking about like, you know, building lives eventually with people. Yeah. Uh, that 
could be like, oh, sex robots are a problem. And to... Which, by the way, they might be, but it's like, it's, it's the guns are a problem. The same thing. Uh, yeah. Like, it, it, knives are a problem. You know, every, a, 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 bat, a baseball bat's a problem, depending on how you use it, you know? Right. And the interesting thing about this is a lot of these men, which is just interesting, just kind of as like an experiment, a lot of these men, when they start taking care of them, they stop having sex with them. Because there's just it starts wow. to feel odd. So it's in in the majority, and I'm not a social scientist, and I don't have a statistic for this. But from what I saw in like the three months I was like researching it, it wasn't so much men sexual like sexualizing humans or objectifying humans. Yeah. It was them humanizing robots, and it just turned a lot of these guys are like it feels weird. Like I don't know. I just and they just kind of become like sort of pieces of art that they have in their house. Wow. It's not the kind of art I would want in my house. But something happens when you take care of something. And the bigger thing that was interesting to me was like, and this is a generalization and you guys are going to want to fight with me, but provocative and worth talking about whether I'm right or wrong because I don't think I have the answer. A lot of these men were like, well, women just don't let you take care of them anymore. And these men were finding joy in just taking care of something. My vote is like, just rescue a dog if you need to take care of something. Like <laughs> like women don't, you know, but it was like all these feminists, they take care of themselves and there's nothing for us to do anymore and they feel useless. Which is so interesting to me. I've, I've certainly experienced, and I, and, I, and I said something recently to a group of women where I was like, I'm so fucking sick of being told that I'm intimidating. Like, I'm not intimidating. You're intimidated. Yeah. That's the issue yeah. here. And if my career or my success or my political advocacy yeah. or my intellect or whatever is intimidating yeah. to you, you need to deal with that. Yeah. And then my second follow-up with my friends is always like, out alpha me, please. Like, do it. I would love for somebody to show up and but do that. that. That would be so nice. Like, if you want to be caring, yeah. just do it and I would accept it. It would yeah. be so nice. But... Because you haven't been around for the past, you know, 35 plus years. So what was I supposed to do? Or Just be waiting. Ch- or let's change the <laughs> definition of care. Yes. So it's like my fiance. Don't on people who you love. I do don't that. need you to feed me. No. I've, I'm good. I'm in, I'm in my hands function. Like I don't need you to pay for my shit. I don't need, like you complain that you don't want a gold digger and then you complain that you have nothing to do. It's right. just pick a lane. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I have this ongoing thing with the person I'm with because I get that I'm hard to love. If your love language is you need to take care of someone, I get why you think I'm aloof for, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. But the way you can take care of me is like when I'm working, just be cool if I don't text back. Like yeah. that's how you can take care of me is to yeah. take care of yourself and be okay when I, you know, come back. So I think the definition of care is just kind of changing. Yeah, that's and, true. You know, but I do think there's a lot of older school men that want to be able to like physically take care of something. I saw this amazing tweet the other day this girl posted and like I'm probably going to butcher it, but it essentially said, no, Brian, you don't get it. I make more money than you, but I want you to pay for my dinner because my in, my foundation costs more than your entire outfit. Yep. You know, it's like, yep. it was this hilarious thing where I was just like, a, a society rooted in more equality where like women are working and making money doesn't mean you can't be yeah. this like traditional guy that you sort of long to be yeah. like, yeah, you can still buy dinner like, and like, because my shit is really expensive. Like my my socks do cost $12 to your $2 socks. Yeah. Yeah. There's you know? still an, you know, an inequality. It's still a thing. Like, do you know how much it costs me to get my hair cut? For you to go on a date, if you buy me dinner is $80. And for me to go on a date with you, it's like I already put 300 bucks just into like, right. you know what I mean? The bronzer alone or whatever. <laughs> but um, 
But yeah, so it's like, it was just interesting. And like, my thing is, I don't ever try to say like, I'm right about this. And I know the answer. It's just the robots are happening, whether we like it or not. And I just think that we have to have some kind of game plan in place. We have to have lawyers that study robot law that needs to start happening because there's a lot of amazing things we can do with robots. We can send them, you know, to different countries to teach kids that don't have schools. Like we can send them to, like I work a lot with Operation Smile and it's this cleft palate surgery that a robot can do. If we can send robots to other countries to do these surgeries, they can do eye surgeries, they can detect skin cancer, like they can clean up the oceans, (laughs) like they they can go into Mm -hmm. fire and take people out of it. Like there are amazing things robots can do, but humans were such narcissists (laughs) that we're just like, nothing can do anything better than us and anything that's smarter than us is going to kill us. Like we're so like... Yeah, but it's also like maybe if we were being smart about this, we could create them to detect skin cancer and clean up the ocean. Yeah, but they're doing it. And maybe ensure that they don't kill us yeah like why not (laughs) yeah i mean it's the way from what i understand the way robots work because they work on this point system it's hard and i I know i was the one that was like well just turn it off (laughs) and like they'll learn how to override our commands and Mm -hmm. not turn themselves off because they're going to want more points it's just that my thing is the people that are smart enough to make robots are smart enough to figure out a way that they're not going to kill us you know what i mean it's like you can't be that smart and that stupid at the same time I have. Well, I mean, maybe. <laughs> like, I, there's things in history that might suggest otherwise, but I, I, on the idealistic or optimistic side, I really would like to agree with you. Yeah, I mean, well, we don't know, but if yeah. we do, if we just go no, where it's like it's like 15 years ago going no, we hate porn. It's like, okay, we don't have any fucking laws in place. We don't yeah. have any fucking game Still. plan. We don't have any rules nothing because we are just too afraid to talk about it and we're mm-hmm. too afraid to sound like perverts we're too afraid to be wrong we're too afraid to be suffer whatever it is like i'm just like we have to start having this conversation cuz this is happening and i i just don't see the point of being pretending that it's not you know and it's a really dangerous kind of area so you're talking about sex robots in your special but it's i'm talking about and it's also the big the big reason i did this actually was to kind of show like a physical representation of like every woman i know now i mean here's the problem is that progress is happening and women are you know hopefully getting hired more in the workforce going better but every woman i know is like their biggest thing is like i i just i need to be able to be in two places at once i need a double you know and so my thing is like let's get this technology so that we can what does your fiance think what if this can help us he hates it (laughs) he hates it he hates it so much he won't even look at it it makes him angry my theory is he subconsciously is obsessed with it she lives in a coffin in my garage (laughs) (laughs) which is hard for me to do which i now get here's the thing the robots we gotta understand like you get emotionally, that's what's going to be the hard part. We're going to get emotionally attached to them. That's the thing that's the weirdest. So like, I feel bad. Like on the way here, I put like a sweater over her head and I was like, you okay. Like I felt bad when I put her in the garage. I feel bad. And then I get paranoid. Like I think she's like colluding with like the dog crates to like make weapons. Like the things that go on in your mind are really nuts. Our brains are crazy. Crazy. And so a lot of our fears are rational. A lot of them are irrational. We should probably decide. I have a, just a logistical question. Do you travel with this? And if you do, what does she travel in? A... <laughs> your face. Because 
is making me realize how ridiculous it is. I think this is the first time I've brought her out into public with a new person. I, I actually think it's so weird how like normal you're being about this. Now I that get phased by a lot. Because now that you're asking these questions, I'm realizing how crazy. <laughs> like I just had the epiphany how batshit crazy it is to travel around with a head of myself. She travels in like a roller bag. Like it's a special roller bag. It's, it's very like men in black. Okay. It's a suit. It's like a But bull- it's like a truck. It's a whole thing. It's. It's hundred thousand dollars. I mean, what? a robot is. A robots are. They don't have. There's none of these. There's like three of these. There's three. I think robots in the world that people have of themselves. This isn't a. This is a big deal. Did they make this for you? This is custom. Special? Yeah. This is. A, this took a year. This is not a thing that's just around. You know, like you can get a. Ro- you know, like, but this is. Not- but like these guys on these chat rooms aren't spending a hundred. No, no, no. They don't have room. robots. They have like dolls, and some of them, the robots are just starting. This okay. is very far from being commonplace. Wow. I mean, this is very far You're from You're a being- pioneer. I re- dubious honor. Um, <laughs> but yeah, this is a very new sort of concept. And I hope that it just, I just kind of wanted to have the conversation because we didn't do it with porn. We were too young. Yeah. But no one was like, this could go either, this is bad. Is this, what is this? What is this? And yeah. a lot of women are saying, I, you know, I have very mixed thoughts about like sex workers and because it's, who knows what's, if you're that young, what's, you don't have options and, you know, because it's one of the few places that women can actually make a lot of money fast. So I get confused, you know, because I want to go like, I want all porn to go away. And then I'm like, wait, what? You know, so I struggle with a lot of that stuff. So right. I like to go into areas that I struggle with and that one day I'm like, this is bad. And the next day I'm like, well, is it that bad? I like to just like venture into areas where I don't know the answer and yeah. then let society tell me all their opinions and then we can all like work it out. Yeah, I like that. None of us know. If this is bad, none of us. So when people are like, this is bad, it's like, okay, but would it make porn go away? Would that be good? Or would that just be moving the bad to something? I just truly don't know the answer. Yeah, I don't know. And I just, I think when you put something like this out in the world, then people start talking about it and then experts start thinking about it and then they'll decide what's better for society, hopefully. Those researchers we like so much. Those researchers. Put some funding and research to this. Get a scientist onto it because because what the neurologists I've talked to are saying the worst thing in the world for all of us is the thing we carry in our pocket all day, every day. But we want to like be mad at a sex robot that doesn't exist yet. Not the thing that's in our pocket. There's just like, look, you're never going to do it forever. But some little changes, like I don't plug in my phone in my bedroom anymore. I plug it in upstairs. You mean to charge it like overnight? Yeah. Like I have an alarm clock. I don't open my phone first thing in the morning. I can't, I just can't do that because then I'm welcoming the entire world into my bed with me in the morning and it's hard and it's it's a really hard habit to break and i will admit i was on a trip recently and was using my phone as my alarm clock because i didn't think to buy a travel one and then when i got home for like the first week i was just plugging it into my room again and i was like oh my god look how fast i broke my oh you relapse right have you ever put your phone in grayscale yeah that's kind of a game changer for me a lot of what's addictive about it is a color i mean it's tricky because this conversation and we're about to open up another three-hour conversation is addiction and addicts with this are different than people that don't identify as addicts. And so yeah. I identify as an addict. So it's like this is an addiction that is just my dopamine receptors just don't hold on to it the same way, you know? Yeah, and there's it. until we have a mental health conversation about it, it, no one will acknowledge addiction and how it works and how it exists. It's like this is 
a public health crisis for addicts. And I, again, identify as one and it is just 100%. like, I'll say it. I was like on the four or five one, picked it up and I was like, oh my God. Now I have to put in the back seat of my car when I drive. Yeah, you're like, I got to throw it back It's there. not like I'm going to pick up the, it's just so automatic. No, you're not choosing, you're doing. It's an overwhelming it's craving. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then workaholism, the other ism addiction you have, it's synonymous with this thing. So mm-hmm. then it's just like, is it the workaholism? Is it the codependence? Is it the phone? Like really figure yeah. out what your addiction actually is. Well, so that might lead us into my last question because mm-hmm. I do like to ask it of everyone and the you know, the podcast is called Work in Progress, mm-hmm. you know. We oh, all well, look- I'm fixed. Great. Wait. You don't need to answer the why question. Why am I on this show? I don't know. I'm done. That's great. I'm cooked. I'm so happy for you. There's no pro- perfection. Can you write another book to teach this us is, how to do that? This is perfection, not progress. But yeah, the I think everyone kind of looks at everyone else's life and thinks it's perfect because our screens like to lie to us. Yeah. And so I, I like to ask people who've done so many amazing things with their life, what is something that feels like a work in progress to you? And it could be personal, it could be professional, it could be political, it could be whatever. But what what feels like the the sort of thing the, that the, you're the thing that I really with? need to or that you not, you need or or that yeah. you're curious about or that you're yeah. tinkering with and enjoying? Like it doesn't have to be heavy yeah I mean I have a couple things like for me I really the the things I still sort of struggle with on a day-to-day is like the kind of people that I vibrate to is still I am very attracted to very magnetically chaotic charismatic people I just vibrate I can walk into a room and just the most insane troublesome person that's going to cause the biggest wrecking ball just like voomp, you know and I think and we call it chemistry we call it passion we call you, you know whatever I'm just like gunk and so I have to kind of work on the type of people I allow in my space because I really like and especially in our business where we're surrounded by statistically the most charismatic people on the planet all the time mm-hmm. just going like nope you know you go on a set you work with someone and you're like bah, 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 and then you're just like okay been a pleasure working with you. Now I'm going to go back to my book. Gotta go. It's just staying boring. You know, mm. my therapist, sounds weird to say, but I guess that's what she is. She basically is just like, your version of boring is actually just serenity. Just being mm-hmm. okay with things being boring. You know, I'm like constitutionally terrified of being boring, having a boring life, missing out, you know. So I think for me, it's just like resisting chaos or, you know, drama because sometimes my brain tells me that that's like fun and like mm. a great, like a new friendship. Like I just, it's just something I gravitate towards. I think forgiveness is a big thing that I'm working on because I struggle with the difference between having a strong boundary or cutting out something unhealthy and forget, like you're allowed to have forgiveness around that and mm. compassion. You can have a bottom line and forgiveness at the same time. You know, you can go, that person maybe shouldn't be in my life, but I, forgive them. You know, I used to think that I had to carry resentment in order to keep reinforcing a boundary, but I don't, you know, so that's something I really... The idea of being able to say no, but that's okay. Godspeed. (sighs) Like, just not a match. Like, I, it's just not a match. And that's okay. Like, you Mm -hmm. don't need to change who you are. I don't need to change. Like, it's just not a match. And like, that's totally fine. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, seeing friendships a little more like dating. Mm -hmm. Because like friendships, we like force ourselves to stay in friendships that maybe, you know, don't serve us or just are not healthy or whatever. Mm -hmm. It doesn't serve the other person because you're enabling them in some way. Mm -hmm. Whereas in relationships, we go like, oh, we have to get out of that. 
But friendships, we're like, we got to stay in that, you know, because yeah. it's just women or whatever it is. So yeah. just kind of like, you know, figuring that out. But I, yeah, I think forgiveness is a big thing for me because it's the deal with forgiveness, right? Is that you don't forgive someone because they deserve forgiveness. You forgive them because you deserve peace, mm. you know? And I tend to carry around, like I'll still have fights in my head with somebody when I'm like, because they did that thing and if we just, and it's like, no, yeah. it's just not a match and that's okay. I think something that's helped me do that is owning the mistakes I made yeah. that were associated in the space. Yeah. And it's funny because being women in entertainment, I've talked about some of that and it turns into like a, you know, she slammed so-and-so for, and I'm like, no, I've just talked about what I learned yeah. in a situation in which I was younger and more naive yeah. like to say, oh, I see how that happens or whatever. And I think that that, that I think that sort of being able to laugh yeah. At your own part yeah. in something that you experienced with someone helps you forgive them too. I think that's so important. And you're bringing up a point that I think not a lot of people talk about is there's a big conversation right now. It's like we're running out of batteries. <laughs> is that you're that there's this big conversation about don't be apologetic. But if you did something apologize. Lame. Yeah. Apo- own you I just like to call own your part. Yeah. You know what I mean? You can apologize without being apologetic. You can own your part without being a doormat. Yeah. And you can apologize without being devalued by having made a mistake. In fact, it's where your power is, you know, and you also can accept an apology you didn't ever receive, you know what I mean? And just like, like being okay with, and that's part of the reason I think people think I'm such a like nutty animal person, but it's just like animal behavior is how I understand human behavior Mm -hmm. because most of our communication is nonverbal, you know? So it's like, that's the way that I start to understand and also limit, accept limitations of people, which is something codependents can't really do. We're like, oh, if I only love them enough, they'll be more like this. And if Mm -hmm. I, if I just showed up more, they'd be more like this. If I just loaned them money, they'd be more like this. Mm -hmm. If I just sort of wore this and dressed this way or talked less or talked more, like we try to change other people's neurology with our behavior and it's insane and impossible. So working with animals has helped me really like if there's, if I have an abused dog in my house, and they're too scared to come near me, I'm not going to be like, fuck them. I'm like, of course they're going to act like this given the circumstances. And then I apply that same compassion and patience to humans and life gets better. Yeah. I really want to squish her face. It's already so squished It's It's already so squished. How could it be squished? I have a foster in my house right now, if you guys probably uh, know or don't know. And yeah, every time I bring in a new foster, I learn something else about Mm. how impossible my expectations are for human beings yeah. and how how impossible to please I am and how much I need to control other people's behavior. So dogs keep me humble. J- training, you know, traumatized dogs really helps me accept other people's limitations and my own. That's pretty cool. I have them. Um, we all do. This show is executive produced by me, Sophia Bush and Sim Sarna. Our supervising producer is Allison Bresnick. Our associate producer is Caitlin Lee. Our editor is Josh Windish. And our music was written by Jack Garrett and produced by Mark Foster. This show is brought to you by Brilliant Anatomy. Brilliant Anatomy.